evening, time being 7 o'clock, I call the March 15, 2023 meeting of the Franklin Town Council to order. Please pause for a moment of silence. Please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Happy New Year's. Announcements from the chair, all citizens are now welcome to attend public board and committee meetings in person. Meetings are live streamed by Franklin TV and shown on Comcast Channel 11 and Verizon Channel 29. In an effort to maximize citizen engagement opportunities, citizens will be able to continue to participate remotely via phone or you may click the Zoom link that is on the posted agenda and on the town's website. The phone number is 1-929-205-6099 and the Zoom ID is 876-1255-4946 and then you need to hit the pound sign. So once again, the Zoom ID 876 one, two, five, five, four, nine, four, six, pound. If residents are just interested in watching the meeting, it will also be live streamed by Franklin TV. Uh, next item on the agendas, citizens' comments. Citizens are welcome to express their views for up to three minutes on a matter that is not on the agenda. The Council will not engage in a dialogue or comment on a matter raised during citizens' comments. The Town Council will give remarks appropriate consideration and may ask the Town Administrator to review the matter. Is there anyone in Council Chambers that would like to speak on an item not on tonight's agenda? Please come forward. Uh, just name and address, please. I don't want to get yelled at by Steve for not talking into the microphone, so I'll do my best. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Amber Wilson, 903 Lincoln Street. Um, I'm here as a resident, but also as the president of the LGBTQ Alliance here in Franklin. Uh, we are having our annual, second annual, Celebrate with Pride event on June 25th. I wanted to make everybody aware. But in addition to that, I wanted to propose that we fly a pride flag outside of um, Town Hall here, uh, either the entire month of June or at least the weekend of our pride event. Um, this is looking forward to be an annual event. Uh, the city of Boston does it, a lot of other um, towns and cities within the Commonwealth do it, and I think it would be a great showing of support from the town admin and town council if we could show our support, especially given the current climate. Okay. Thank you very much. Is there anyone else in council chambers that would like to speak on an item not on tonight's agenda? Okay, seeing no one, is there anyone out there in Zoom land that would like to speak on an item not on tonight's agenda? 
I don't see, don't see anyone. You don't see anyone, Jamie. Okay, seeing none, we will move on. Next item on the agenda is the approval of minutes, and I'd entertain a motion to approve the minutes from March 1st, 2023. So moved. Second. Motion is second. Discussion, additions, deletions. Seeing none, the vote will come on the motion. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Uh, next item on the agenda is uh, proclamations, recognitions, and tonight we have uh, four swearing in. Yes, Chief, please. Good evening. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the council. Uh, yes, we are, uh, we've hired again. <laughs> These are the 27th through 30th officers we've hired in the last six and a half years that we will be introducing uh, tonight. So a uh, great night for the PD. Uh, their families are here as well. Uh, I'm going to bring them up one at a time and just read a little, embarrass them a little bit maybe. But, you know, <laughs> as well you should. <laughs> Officer Silva. <laughs> Special dispensation for being first. <laughs> Yeah, or the first one hired out of the four. <laughs> so here we go. All right, so it is my pleasure to introduce and welcome Officer Marciano Silva to the Franklin Police Department. Marciano started his law enforcement career as a reserve police officer with the Westport Police Department in 2018. He was hired by the New Bedford Police Department in 2019 and attended the first recruit officer class at the Cape Cod Municipal Police Academy. Upon graduation, he worked in both patrol operations and with the Gang Narcotics Unit in New Bedford. In October 2021, Marciano accepted employment with the Sutton Police Department, where he remained until joining the uh, Franklin Police Department in July. Marciano was fluent in both Portuguese and Spanish. Marciano has an associate's degree in criminal, criminal justice from Bristol Community College, and is currently pursuing a bachelor's degree at Bridgewater State University, and he currently resides in Franklin. Uh, later on, he will be pinned by his wife, Michelle Silver. Officer Gula. My pleasure to introduce and welcome Officer Christopher Gula. A lifelong resident of Franklin, Chris joined the U.S. Navy in 2015 after graduating Franklin High School and served as a security force sentry. In 2017, after two years with the Navy, Chris joined the U.S. Army and served as an infantry mortarman leader until his honorable discharge in 2020. After five years of military service, Chris worked as an administrative liaison at Franklin High School, assisting the school administration with supervision of the students. Chris was hired by the Franklin PD and attended the 30th recruit officer class at the Boylston Police Academy, graduating on December 30th, 2022. Chris is currently pursuing a bachelor's degree in criminal justice at Southern New Hampshire University. Later, Chris will be penned by his wife, Emily. Also, the cure. My pleasure to introduce and welcome Officer Michael LaCure. Michael is no stranger to Franklin as he grew up in town and attended the Parmenta, Sullivan, and Remington schools before he and his family moved to Maynard, Massachusetts. 
He began his law enforcement career in 2013 as a dispatcher for the Concord, Massachusetts Police Department. In 2014, he attended the 166th New Hampshire Police Academy and was soon hired as a patrol officer with the Milford, New Hampshire Police Department, where he served as a drug recognition expert and a field training officer. In December 2021, Michael was promoted to sergeant and supervised a patrol shift as well as the Milford, New Hampshire Police Department's canine program. Michael has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Fitchburg State University, and Michael recently joined the department in January, and he will be pinned by his wife, Megan, and his son, Connor. Thank you. And last, but certainly not least, because I know I'll be back up here in a couple of months, <laughs> Officer Quinn. my pleasure to introduce and welcome Officer Kevin Quinn. In 2019, Kevin started his career in law enforcement as a dispatcher with the Walpole Police Department, where he remained for two years. In October 2021, Kevin was hired by the University of Massachusetts Boston Police Department as a patrol officer recruit and attended the 14th recruit officer class at the Randolph Police Academy. Kevin has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from West, Westfield State University and is currently enrolled at the University of Massachusetts Lowell pursuing a master's degree in criminal justice. And Kevin just recently joined the department this month, currently in field training. Pending Kevin will be his father, Thomas Quinn, who works for the Boston Fire Department. Nancy. So I'm gonna swear them in separately, because they deserve it. It's your choice, you're the clerk. Welcome, all of you. Congratulations, a great choice. We're lucky to have you. And another Portuguese. I'm gonna say your name right, because I can. Ready? Marciano, I'm gonna ask you to raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Marciano Silva. I, Marciano Silva. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. To faithfully execute the duties. To faithfully ex execute the duties. As a police officer. As a police officer. For the town of Franklin. For the town of Franklin. With respect. With respect. Integrity. Integrity. And excellence. And excellence. And to uphold the mission. And to uphold the mission. Of the department. Of the department. The Constitution of the United States of America. The Constitution of the United States of America. The state of Massachusetts. The state of Massachusetts. And the law laws and ordinances of the town of Franklin, so help me God. And the laws and ordinances of the town of Franklin, so help me God. Congratulations. Thank you. Hi. First, I'm going to ask you to raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Christopher Gula. I, Christopher Gula. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. To faithfully execute the duties. To faithfully execute the duties. As a police officer. As a police officer. For the town of Franklin. For the town of Franklin. With respect. With respect. Integrity. Integrity. And excellence. And excellence. And to uphold the mission of the department. And to uphold the mission of the department. The Constitution of the United States of America. The Constitution of the United States of America. The state of Massachusetts. The state of Massachusetts. And the laws and ordinances of the town of Franklin. And the laws and ordinances of the town of Franklin. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. Thank you. Ask you to raise your right hand. I. How do you say your first name? It's not Michael. It is Michael. Oh, it is. <laughs> I'm Michael LaCure. I'm Michael LaCure. 
do solemnly swear do solemnly swear to faithfully execute the duties to faithfully execute the duties as a police officer as a police officer for the town of franklin for the town of franklin with respect with respect integrity integrity and excellence and excellence and to uphold the mission of the department and to uphold the mission of the department the constitution of the united states of america the constitution of the united states of america the state of massachusetts the state of massachusetts and the laws and ordinances and the laws and ordinances of the town of franklin of the town of franklin so help
So through you, Mr. Chairman, so tonight before the, uh, the council is the appointment of the master plan uh, committee members. Um, as the memo uh, says in the packet, uh, we had uh, just about 16 folks apply. Um, I will say some of the people that are on the list, not the folks before you tonight for appointment. Some of the other folks that applied, applied for multiple committees. So just because someone's not necessarily on the list tonight doesn't mean they may not get appointed anything. Um, as you can see, there were also some individuals that were the same family, and there were some other people that um, were on similar boards and committees. And so we tried to put forth a balanced proposal of what we thought uh, represented uh, a wide array of the community, um, and tried to nominate folks who had the time, had the clear passion and dedication to put the work in, as I explained in uh, at the chart when we approved the committee charge, um, this is going to be a 12 to 18 month long project. It is going to require a tremendous amount of time uh, and reading of not just the previous master plan, but there will be um, a lot of documentation and subcommittees to participate in throughout. Uh, as going through with the six at large, just so everybody remembers, the seven members of the, both the Council of Planning Board, Conservation Commission, and ZBA were nominations based off those committee discussions. And all those committees had a conversation within the last few weeks and brought those committee appointments uh, to myself. And I am respecting the wishes of those committees and bringing those appointments um, to the board. As for the at-large appointments, I think we see some familiar names on there and we see some new names on there. Um, so there's a healthy balance of folks um, that have been in the planning process before, that have done master plans, um, we put the applications in the packet as well, so at least uh, councilors have at least a little bit of background uh, on those folks. Um, and I think that's about it. So happy to answer any questions that folks have. Um, and I do not expect, just for uh, everybody's edification, don't expect the master plan committee process to start next week. Um, okay, just to temper everybody's expectations, because that's what I do apparently a lot now. Um, it's just, it's going to take a little while to get timeline, process, uh, and working with Brian and Amy and the staff downstairs. This project is being led uh, by the planning department after tonight, once the appointments get made. As I've spoken of before, but for the folks at home, uh, the council has adequately funded uh, the master plan process. Uh, they have the resources that they need. Um, and I'm gonna leave it to Brian and the staff down at the planning department um, to put out and work with the chair of the committee um, to be able to come up with a reasonable timeline, if there's an RFP that has to go out for procurement, things of that sort, just so that the uh, administrative pieces uh, can get handled uh, in advance so everybody can kind of put on their calendars exactly what the timeline is. So uh, if anybody has any questions about the master plan process, Brian's here. Uh, I can hopefully answer some of that stuff. And um, away we go. We'll wait for this moment for a long time. For those of you that have been sure. waiting for it, you've waited 11 years, and now you have a full master plan committee before you to uh, get to work. Absolutely. Uh, before I go to the council for questions, I'd like the clerk to read the appointments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll be happy to read these appointments. This is for the master plan update committee. Uh, from the Franklin Town Council, Glenn Jones of 172 School Street, uh, Kobe Frangillo of 140 Maple Street, Melanie Hamlin of 70 Daniel Street, um, from the Franklin Planning Board, uh, Richard Power of 10 Royal Court, uh, Jennifer Williams of 28 Queen Street, from the Zoning Board of Appeals, Bruce Hunchard of 496 Summer Street, 
for Franklin Conservation Commission, uh, Megan Hagen, of 13 Woodhaven Drive. Uh, six citizens at large, Kenneth Elmore, 29 School Street, Aaron Gallagher of 2 Cohasset Way, Joe Halligan of 1 New Well Drive, uh, Janelle Lang of 2 Harlow Pond Court, Eric Stetzler, Stetzer of 7 Mercer Lane, and Gino Carlucci of 1 Tony Lane. Motion to ratify the appointments, the names listed above by the town administrator to serve as members of the Master Plan Update Committee with terms to expire upon delivery of a final report to the Planning Board for their consideration. Second. Motion and second. Discussion. <clears throat> Councilor Frangillo. Uh, I would just say that's a, that, that's a difficult task to, to put together a Master Plan Committee and, and I think we have a really great group uh, in front of us so I, I commend uh, you for, for putting this group together. I'm sure you had quite a few people to uh, to interview, um, and it's it's too bad that we can't. You know, there's only so many seats, so we can't get everything. I, I think it gets a, a pretty wide diversity. If I could just name it, you know, I think where it's lightest and where I think we need to make sure that we put a concerted effort in during, in terms of actually engaging um, people throughout the process around our schools, around our arts. Uh, and around agriculture, um, particularly with you know tying in that arts and culture, but really in all three of those, making sure that we're um, you know keeping in mind that uh, there are our stakeholders in those spaces that we want to include throughout this process. Thank you, Councilor Frangillo. Uh, Councilor Jones. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, these, this is an excellent selection of, of very bright, intelligent individuals. I know will make a, make their best effort towards putting forth a good master plan. It is a time-consuming effort, so thank you for joining on, considering how busy times can get. But I do want to point out to the council, as well as the public at large, that we are actually charged by Massachusetts State Law under Section 81D to, as a city and town, under Section 81, we shall make a plaster master plan for such city and towns and parts of, therefore, said board may be deemed advisable from time to time. The last time that we did this was 2013. Mm -hmm. So technically speaking, you can refer to this as not a new master plan, but it's simply an update since the 2013 <clears throat> um, There will be portions of the last master plan. If everyone um, would like, they can always visit the town's website, uh, type in master plan under search and look up the current existing master plan, uh, read some highlights from it. Um, I'm, I'm certain as we go through this process, Brian and the team, uh, we will we will be happy to have crossed off many of the items that were listed on the previous master plan because many of them have been accomplished. Um, we're looking forward to update that and uh, look, look forward to making the future a bright, prosperous thing for the town. Thank you, Councillor Jones. Any other comments, questions? Seeing none, the vote will come on the motion to approve, uh, to ratify the appointments presented uh, this evening by the town administrator. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Okay, next item on the agenda, public hearings. We don't have any this evening. New license transaction. Again, we don't have any this evening. Presentation and discussion. We do have a couple. The first one is discussion <coughs> of block cameras. Uh, 
Oh, he's, he's the presenter. I don't oh, yeah, the <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the council. Um, so this was a proposal. <clears throat> We're talking about the flock safety system, uh, which is an automatic license plate reader system. Uh, we're looking, we've done some research on it, and we talked to the town administrator about implementing a program, and we felt that it was important that we bring this to the council to give you an idea or inform you what it is we'd like to do, uh, and then of course if there were any questions or anything like that on it. Um, I was introduced to it on a couple different occasions, but most recently in October when I was at the IACP or the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference, and was a good friend of mine that I attended the Nas FBI National Academy with from Vestavia Hills, Alabama, ended up telling me about, you know, the flock system as we were walking through the vendor show, which is, you know, a couple of uh, football fields full of, you know, everything you can imagine from software to badges to, you know, aircraft. Um, it, it's kind of like the candy store for law enforcement offices. <laughs> and he made it a point that we had to go talk to these people because of how much the system has been, they've benefited from having it uh, in their community. Um, and then it just so happened a few months after that that Officer Demer, uh, Demers ended up coming to me and saying, hey, I'd like to, Michael Demers, I would like to uh, potentially, if you're good with the Chief, do a little more research on this and try to um, come up with a proposal. I was like, absolutely. The Deputy Chief was also uh, aware, aware of it and the system uh, <coughs> and what it can do. And um, so tonight we have Officer Michael Demers is here. He's the one that did all the research on it. He's put together a PowerPoint to talk about it. We're also fortunate to have uh, Laurie Holland, who is uh, a member of, uh, who's an employee with Flock. Uh, she's in Zoomland. Um, so that if we have any questions that are of a technical nature that we might not be able to answer, we're hoping that Laura might be able to, uh, you know, maybe fill in those holes. Uh, so without further ado, Michael, floor is yours. All right, I think I'm going to sit down. Just so, good evening. How are you all doing? I'm Mike Demers, as the chief uh, just pumped me up. I just want to start this presentation by saying that I'm very grateful to be here. I'm grateful that we have such a great command staff that an idea like this can be floated and they give us the opportunity to run with it. Um, so as he said, it is a license plate reader system. Um, often these are called cameras, and I almost cringe at the word because it's not a camera. It just actually takes photographs of license plates and only the rear license plates of cars. So just to give you like a, an overview, so to speak, staffing levels. As you know, we're always hiring. This, we're just constantly trying to fill spots. But at the same time, you have limitations, obviously, with the budget and how many officers we can retain due to the cost of that. So what we're looking to do is augment our force through this system. So with this system, we'd be able to essentially let officers access another tool in investigating situations that we run into. An interesting fact that was brought to me by Lori Ann was actually 75% of crimes committed in the United States involve a motor vehicle. That was uh, quoted by the International Association of the Chiefs of Police. As you know, license plate reader technology is nothing new. After 9-11, there was a big push in grant funding. A lot of departments put them on cars. That's not what we're proposing here tonight. We want a stationary system in two spots in town specifically that would be positioned to monitor traffic. So the reason behind this, we can actually work with our you know, neighboring partners, 
people that we work in, task force, the federal government, that type of thing, and um, strengthen our partnerships just to kind of you know, be on the same page, so to speak. So examples of nearby Massachusetts communities, we actually have Bellingham and Medway, two towns that touch us, that have these systems already. So in us having this system, we'd be able to connect with them on another level beyond what we already work with them at. So what I really like about the system is there's an additional avenue of accountability there. Flock offers this, it's a, it's a portal. And obviously, on our website, we list our uses of force. We want to be as transparent as possible with the public so everybody knows exactly what's going on because we have nothing to hide. So they have this portal that the public can actually access and look and see how many cars are being read, how many uh, vehicles have passed that certain point. So it may have actual uses beyond policing, too, if we wanted to do like an infrastructure study um, working with the highway department. And it's mainly invasive. Because we're not sticking this on a car, it's not driving around, you know, subject to the patterns of any officer. It's a stationary, known point where we can read the license plates. <coughs> so, we have a lot of potential uses for this. Often we're, we're called for suicidal individuals. You know, someone calls a loved one and they tell them that they are not feeling good and they are thinking about ending their lives. Often what we end up doing is we have to go through the cell phone carriers and actually ping cell phones, try and locate. Sometimes the pings are as, as big as a mile, so we're, we're left with a big circle around the cell phone towers where we have to find out where this person is. And in combination with this, if we had a camera, and say for example that person's on the highway, they get off the highway, we get an alert because we have that specific plate that we're looking for, we've entered it into what we call a hot list. And then that would alert us that that person's getting off on the highway so we could then go and speak with them and make sure that they're okay and get them the help they need. So another interesting aspect of this is it can point out operators of vehicles that have felonious warrants. So we're talking like violent crimes here, not somebody that forgot to renew their license or you know couldn't pay their insurance this month because of a hard time. We're looking for people that you know murder, um, assaults with dangerous weapons, that type of thing, home invasion. So, missing children. This actually interlocks with the Amber Alert system. So, if someone had a broadcast that a child was abducted, we can actually upload that and then locate that vehicle. If it gets off, we get a flag alert that says, hey, you know, this vehicle is here at this time. So we can work with the state police too if we allow uh, them the access to the data. And local drug farm and human trafficking interdiction with community partners. As you may or may not know, we have a great task force officer that works in collaboration with other communities as part of our department. And this is just another piece of the puzzle that he can bring to you know that, that dessert, so to speak. It's another piece of the pie. He brings that, and now there's another data point that we can say, okay, you know, we know that this person who's involved in human trafficking stops at this hotel or you know frequents this this town. We will know that, so that way we can you know do something about it. So interesting too. We recently saw a uh, last in the last year I would say an uptick in the number of Cadillac converters uh, being stolen. It's like the newest thing. We're cutting right out of cars. It's unbelievable. Um, so these people come into town. Often, actually, it's funny. I remember one particular car, and it, it vexed me. 
because I knew that there was this one type of car that was this one color that was involved with it, and you're always looking for that car. This system would be able to assist in that because it could actually identify um, specific make, model, and color of the car. So we could put that into a hot list and get a certain uh, time frame. Say, for example, somebody had their valid to convert cut up. Organized retail thefts. This is something I saw a lot um, over in North Attleboro, but it is traveling north and south from Boston. You know, these people actually target businesses and they just come in and they're, they're organized. It's not the days of, okay, we're just gonna go in and grab a couple things and run out. No, these people are coordinating online. It's social media, Facebook pages dedicated to, it, it's unbelievable. I, I wouldn't believe it unless I saw it. So as I already said, suicidal individuals, stolen vehicles and license plates. We're seeing a lot of this too. It's people will steal a plate off of somebody in like Braintree. They'll put it on a car, they come to Franklin, and they, they try and commit a crime using a false attached plate. So with this system, we could actually look at a uh, certain time frame and say, okay, this plate doesn't belong in this car. It's not coming back to that. Because the plate is actually synced to a database that's constantly refreshed by the Registry of Motor Vehicles. And identifying vehicles involved in crimes. So I, I could think of, in the last 45 days, we've had two specific incidents that were really concerning. I happened to be working during both of them. Um, there was a situation where there was a road range incident and somebody had fired shots at a car, and it was, it was a young lady and a husband and a two-year-old child. We had to find that car immediately. And what we had to do, we had to mobilize a number of our detectives and off-duty patrol officers to canvas the area and go house to house to check people, say, hey, can I look at your, uh, you know, your ring camera? Do you mind sharing that with us? And sometimes they say no. You know, you'd be surprised even if they explain the situation. But with this technology, that car coming by or jumping on the highway after that event, we'd be able to go back in that certain time frame and look for the specific vehicle that was described in the report. In the same area, this is the King Street, actually, the King Street exit that this happened at. In the same area, I can't remember, was it the same day? I can't. They all melt together. Yeah, so two hours later, you can't make this up. <laughs> you should have live BD from Frank. You know? <laughs> but uh, so two hours later, we had a situation where a, another road rage incident from the highway, where someone had, had pulled up to somebody at a gas station, and he scared the gentleman to death. He shows him a firearm because he's mad he cut him off. This is what the world's coming to, and we had to find that vehicle. Luckily, that gentleman took a picture of it. He had the composure to do that, but that's a rarity, I would say. All right. So, and potentially identifying witnesses. So, if you just happen to be at the wrong place at the right time, and you witness a crime, sometimes you're not going to stick around. You know, you got to live your life, and you're on your way to work or whatever. If we had to go back and like talk to somebody to see what they saw, we could then again pull that time frame and look at every plate, we'd have a list of plates that we could contact the registered owners and say, hey, did you see anything? You know, anything that could help us solve any type of public safety issues. So with the logic of the locations, we really wanted to maximize this. Because it's not, like I said, we're not sticking them in the center of town. We don't want to know that you know, you're going to the Rome on Friday, every Friday. <laughs> you know? So we stuck up by the highway because most of the people that are coming into town to commit these crimes are coming from outside of town. Right. It's not the people that, we're, we're a bedside community, so. 
these people are coming in up the highway, and the highway is the avenue of quickest approach. So they'll come in, they commit the crime, whether it be like stealing a car, stealing license plates, breaking into cars, whatever it may be. And then they jump back on the highway and they go to the next target. By setting this up, this is just another tool. It's almost like setting up a deterrent. You know? People know. It's posted, it's conspicuous, there's no, no secrets about it. It's there. And people getting off the highway will know that. And once, once again, like I said, you know, criminals talk. So they can post that on their Facebook page, you know, hey, Franklin got new uh, license plate readers. Look out, you know, and hopefully they go somewhere else. You know, we can't stop crime. It's, it's a little unrealistic, but this is a tool to help us deter it and help us to actually solve it. So this is the first pr uh, proposed location we have, the King Street, King Street exit. And as I mentioned, cars getting off of the highway. Let's keep going. Oh. <laughs> so um, cars coming off the highway, it would just capture the rear. It doesn't capture the front. And I think that's a misconception. People are like, well, you know, I they're going to get off the highway and they got their big gulp and, you know, like, oh, are you going to use it to get us texting and driving? No, no, no. We're not going to see the operator. It doesn't retain that data. It just looks at the rear of the car as it comes by and records the license plate. And there's actually established case law on this that license plates are the property of the registry of motor vehicles. There's no expectation of privacy there. This is something that we already do on a, a consistent basis, but we have to do it by hand. So we're limited with this process, and this just kind of helps automate it. So the second proposed location is the uh, 140 exit. As you know, we have the industrial park there. It's been a huge target of the Cadillac that converted thefts. Um, frauds, people fishing for mail. That's the newest thing too, is they'll go into mailboxes and try and steal checks, wash them, and then present for payment modified. So that would also give us another option if we knew for example, someone was in the area and they had their uh, you know, tool that they used to get the bills out of the mailbox, we could then look back and possibly identify subjects. So why flock safety? I looked around a lot and we've come a long way since 2001. The first iteration of cruiser mounted license plate readers, actually when they first deployed it, it used to crash all the time. It ran the if you drove past a one-way sign, it would run that, and it ran, like one way was run like a million times over the course of like a month, and it just was, it was a waste. It wasn't very accurate either. You get misreads. The technology's here. We've advanced considerably in camera technology. They've made it smaller. <coughs> They've made it cheaper. And for a great cost of benefit, we had $2,500 uh, $2, annually per camera and a one-time installation cost would be the operating cost that we're looking at for this. And a proprietary network to connect points of data. So this isn't just a Massachusetts thing. We've also seen regional people, I recall a situation where there was an ATM that was uh, targeted for theft. And I think three days later, the guy was back, he was coming down in Texas. They tracked him because the Secret Service was looking into him. But you know, we could actually access other departments that are willing to share information and say, hey, Texas, you got anything? And it just queries it if we want to go that far. And we can actually track them, you know, say, okay, there's been a string of ATM hits. We can track them down the coast. So it's amazing that that's where we're at. But it always brings up the ethical stance for me. I, I'm really concerned about Big Brother, and I never thought in a million years I'd be up here pitching a license plate reader. 
But this ethical stance, there's actually a lot of legalities to it that this company, if they say that they're gonna delete the data every 30 days, they have to delete the data. You know, they will get sued and fined. It's, it's not pretty if they don't comply to their own policies. So they do it on a 30-day basis, but we can customize it if we find that that's too much. We could always reel it back, or if we find that we need more time, we could always push it forward. Um, and as far as data ownership, we own the data of all the plates that are coming into our town. So they're not gonna take that and sell it to, say for example, Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola knows, okay, we have like our target demographic of 40 to 55 coming off the highway at 2, yeah. 2 p.m. You know, it's geotagging and all that. So I'm now gonna turn it over to uh, Ann from Flock, and she's just gonna talk a little bit about the technicalities of the system. Hi there, hi Officer Demers, can you guys hear me okay? Yes, we can. Yes, good evening, everybody. Um, thanks so much for letting me join virtually tonight. Uh, like Officer Demers and Chief Lynch said, my name is Laura Ann Holland, and I work in community education and local government policy for Flock. I'm really excited to be here to talk to you about um, our Flock Falcon devices, our vehicle recognition system, the way that it works, some of the system specifications, and then how we've tried to um, approach balancing privacy considerations with giving law enforcement the data that we know they need in order to solve crime. Um, would it be helpful, everybody, if I shared my screen, or can you guys still see this, the um, presentation that's being presented? Can you guys see the presentation? Yeah, yeah we're, we, we're fine. Okay, great, just making sure um, everybody can see it. All right, so um, as Officer Dimmer says, said, our um, automated license plate reading technology takes a picture of the back of a vehicle, and then um, stores that image in a database and classifies the image based on some key characteristics like make of the car, type of vehicle, if it's a sedan, a truck, an SUV. Um, it will give the license plate, but also um, will allow officers to search based on partial plates um, or whether there's a missing vehicle or a temporary tag. Um, it can also uh, classify based on what state the license plate is in, and then if there are any unique vehicle features. And we call all of those different pieces of um, data that can be searched by your officers, the vehicle fingerprint. And we know that sometimes officers don't get the full image, right? They, don't, they only get an eyewitness account that it was a, a red SUV. And so being able to have the ability to search based on um, what an eyewitness says or what information they do have can be pivotal in finding an investigative lead. Um, as uh, Officer Demers highlighted, right, as you just a picture of the back of a car, and um, we actually will take a series of pictures and then upload the best one to um, your server, and um, all the others are deleted. But um, it can capture as much as a 75 mile per hour traveling vehicle, um, and uh, we've done some case studies with other communities um, where we have about 30% more accurate reads. Um, when we think about accuracy for uh, the license plate number, um, that's one thing, right? But when we think about accuracy at Flock, we also think about the way that all of the other details and data points that I mentioned are categorized. And so there's two ways that um, something can be accurate. One, is, was the picture taken at all, right? So did the vehicle pass and did we accurately capture an image of the vehicle? But then there's also a more precision piece, right? Is it, did we accurately classify those data points? Did we accurately give the license plate number? And on both instances, we're at above 99% accuracy. 
but one piece that I, I will uh, clarify with our uh, precision accuracy, whenever we're giving a license plate number, we actually also will give um, a probability of, of accuracy in addition to um, the number to your police officers. So um, let's say they, there is a, a license plate associated with an Amber Alert, and we take a picture of the car and um, think that it's a certain license plate and we'll alert an officer, we'll also give them a probability and say, you know, it's 70% that this is um, an accurate read of this license plate. So it gives them additional data points to be able to act on um, before responding to a, an alert from us. Um, uh, yes, we're cloud-based connection. So the um, way that works is that we take a picture and then we send it to a cloud server um, and store it for you, and we're encrypted end-to-end -end from that process. We transfer our data um, through LTE, and we have um, solar-powered devices and um, also AC-powered, depending on what works best for the locations that Officer Divers and Chief Lynch select. Um, the hot lists that we integrate into our system are from the federal registry, so uh, the National Center for Information, or yeah, National Center National Criminal Information Center, sorry, excuse me. Uh, the, that hot list of wanted vehicles that are associated with felony crimes and stolen vehicles, um, and then also with the databases on missing persons and Amber Alerts. Um, we also allow our customers to create custom hot lists, like what um, Officer Dimmers described, but those custom hot lists are uh, not shared globally within the system. They're only uh, used with officers uh, that need that data for a particular investigation. Um, Officer Dimmers has already covered a lot of this, but um, just like he said, whenever we talk about what the system can do, it's really important for us also to make sure to clarify what it does not do so that um, your residents and you guys um, on the town council are, are comfortable with the technology and know exactly um, what it is capable of. So from the get-go, um, we want to clarify, we do not do facial recognition. That's not a part um, of Flock Safety's offerings. Um, it is actually articulated in our contract that, that that's not a, a feature that we do. Um, we also are not uh, storing data for a, a long amount of time, and our customers own their data. So uh, that's really important because there's um, some other companies out there that um, in other technology, right, that sells data um, without customers knowing, and I think we all feel a little um, potentially uncomfortable with that based on our cell phones and our credit cards, right? Um, but with a Flock Safety Partnership, you guys are in total control of your data with the police department, and they can decide how they share it, um, and we will never share it um, without the police department's permission. Um, I think if we can go ahead and go to the next slide, because I think this piece from um, the American Civil Liberties Union is really important. Um, in 2014, the American Civil Liberties Union published a report with some specific recommendations about <coughs> using vehicle recognition technology. And we took that report seriously and tried to develop um, our product and our partnership in, with law enforcement in such a way that those recommendations were addressed. And there's about seven recommendations, um, but the three main things that are of concern with that report are data retention periods, um, so what, you know, how long the data is stored, um, what data is collected and how it's shared and accessed by others, and then whether or not the data is accurate. And I've already talked about um, the accuracy of the data, but um, if, if we think about the retention period 
it's really important for law enforcement to have access to both um, proactive information from a system like this, which is the hot list hit alerts that Officer Demers described, right? If there's a missing person or if there is a stolen vehicle, um, our system will notify officers immediately that that um, vehicle has passed one of our cameras. And so that's what we consider the proactive system. There's also a need for it to be investigated, right? So having the ability to go back in time and find what vehicles were associated with what crimes. Um, and in the report, the ACLU recommended that uh, you, a law enforcement pursue a three-minute data retention, but um, that would completely remove the, the power of the investigative tool that this data can be. And so it's really important that we take the consideration that they made that we don't need to have long-term data retention, but also create enough retention so that officers can really use the tool and find um, potential suspects and investigative leads to bring victims resolution. Um, we also uh, know that, that, that the, one of the recommendations was on data sharing. And I, I mentioned that our customers um, own their data, but uh, as Officer Demers, Demers highlighted, we, we provide an audit log that um, allows the system administrators like Chief Lynch and whoever else he um, deems to be the administrator um, to make sure that the system is being used appropriately. So that audit log is similar to the law enforcement network system and the types of audit logs that are in that system, but it includes who did the search, what the investigative reason was, so we require an investigative reason in our system, what filters they used, what time they did the search, what time period they did the search, and whether they downloaded any data from the search. And that um, audit log includes both Chief Lynch, uh, officers and anybody in um, the Franklin Police Department, but also anyone outside of the Franklin Police Department, maybe from another uh, neighboring jurisdiction who did a search. And so we, we created that as a way to make sure that our officers had the data that they needed to prevent misuse um, and take action in the event that it did. Um, so I, Officer Rivers, I think that's all that we had planned to cover, but I'm sure there are questions and I'm happy to um, help you answer any that come up. Thanks so much again for letting me join you guys virtually. Thank you. Chief, anything else? No, I just think um, when we talked about the retention, um, where, like I said, the, the American Civil Liberties Union basically had to come up with a three, you know, minute. Um, we just had another incident where somebody, it, what happened was is the, the Metacom and Emergency Communication Center, our regional dispatch, got a call, probably from, I believe it was the state police, you know, that got a cell phone call on the highway that they were, uh, the victim was basically saying somebody showed a firearm, a road rage incident where they showed a firearm. The individual couldn't get the plate, but could tell them that they got off at the King Street exit and took a right and were heading towards Washington Street towards Bellingham. Um, of course, the information when the MEC gave it out over the air was, this is 10 minutes old. So we didn't even know about it until approximately 10 minutes after it already happened. Needless to say, did we, find the, did we find a similar looking car? No, we didn't have a license plate. If that camera system was there, then we could have went back to around the time frame with the description from the victim of a certain color, maybe even the make of the car, et cetera, and then we would have some, you know, at least have some leads to be able to, to look into that. Um, that's why we would, you know, go, we recommend with the 30 days, being that a majority of organizations that do use it do have a 30 day retention. Other than that, I think that the question, if, if anybody has any questions, that's why we're here and why we wanted to make sure that we gave you an opportunity. Thank you, Chief. Chief, anything else? Thank you. 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 Thank you
Jamie, anything to add before I go to the council? Nope. Okay. Council. Council Jones. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, great presentation. Your enthusiasm is very salesman-like. <laughs> I'm sorry. Here <laughs> <laughs> to go. Um, my only concern, though, because one of, and, and it's a legit concern, um, one of the major things that they've been adding into our national electrical codes is cybersecurity in regards to equipment. And one of the things I gathered from the discussion tonight is this is going to be an LTE-based network, and it's going to be purposing multiple networks simultaneously, real time, and collecting a lot of data, which means that this makes us, for all intents and purposes, from a cybercrime situation, like a hot thing that anyone would try to get their hands into if they were a hacker. So what is your record? I guess it's more towards Lori than Laura. Yeah. Um, what is your track record for cybersecurity? I know just recently uh, the local pipe fitters got hacked through uh, a, a thermostat in their building, at least that's the rumor, for $6.2 million. And these hackers are just looking to get into critical systems. What level of security do you have in these? Yeah, that's an absolutely great question. And I'll, I'll take a, a couple minutes to describe a, a couple different things so that um, I try to answer your question full circle. First and foremost, we're SOC 2 certified as a company. We take cybersecurity very, very seriously. Um, and we've got a full team of cybersecurity experts that are making sure that our customers' data is protected and it's not vulnerable to attack. Um, we at this point have not had any instances of hacking and i know there's you know that's always a concern um but because we are totally separate from our customers networks from their law enforcement databases there's an additional level of protection for the city right so there's um, no intermingling of uh, data systems or of uh, infrastructure there um, and so you guys as a city are have um, you know, less vulnerability there um, it's also, I think, important to know that we are only taking an image of the back of the car, and there's no personal information in Fluff. Um, so there's, uh, you know, it would be only the images from the past 30 days that would be accessible in Fluff system. Um, and uh, while, of course, that would be problematic if we were hacked, um, there's not a lot of level of detail um, or personal information or uh, community information that can be pulled from um, that information alone. Um, we also, like I said, we encrypt your data at multiple ends of the process. So when the image is taken, when it's sent to the cloud, um, and when it's stored on our Amazon Web Service uh, servers that we provide for our customers, um, it's encrypted all in different keys. Um, and of course, through using Amazon Web Services, we've got an additional level of cybersecurity protection that they provide. Um, the specific cameras that we use also don't have IP addresses, so it makes it a little bit, um, a little bit more protected than an otherwise similar camera. And as far as the camera itself, what it's obviously going to be in a rather busy area. If people do become aware of these things, do you think that that would promote? somebody who posted on Facebook to go out and go out and kick one over. I mean, what's the, we've got to have one in each exit. People start finding out about them, crooks are crooks, they go out and start knocking these things off. Um, how much is that going to cost us if that's something you purchase decided to do? Yeah, that, that's a great question too. Um, you know, I will say in general, we don't see a lot of uh, vandalism of our devices. 
um, only a, a couple dozen times a year and we're all over the country at this point so um, I will say that's definitely a valid concern because it does happen in some communities but it, it's not as big of a concern as you would think and um, we typically see if there is vandalism that it happens actually with a car and um, if that happens of course you get an image of who what vehicle did it so it, it, has been, it has been helpful for some customers to then be able to file insurance claims um, and help reimburse the cost of replacement. Um, replacement is not the same price as um, paying for a camera. Um, we try to be really affordable in the solutions that we provide to our customers because you know we want every community to be able to afford it from um, the most wealthy to communities that um, might be smaller. So uh, I, I can follow up with the exact number of what a replacement cost would be. Thank you, and which ultimately leads me to my last but probably most important question. And I know you noted it in the slide, but what would the overall cost I'm be? I'm not asking for any money from the council. I'm taking care of it in another way. Is this a one-time thing? or is it It's a year. It's a, a one-time uh, cost to actually have it installed, and then it's a yearly thing. So right now, we're only looking at the two. Um, I might be back later on to say, hey, it's working good. Pilot program went well. You know, maybe we could use some more. But for the time being, um, we'll be using a, another stream to be able to pay for that. Can we get some auto speed traps? I'll be back for my budget. Thank you, Councilman Joe. I would. Councilman Delorco. Thank you. Seems great presentation. I'm curious now. They're going to be at the exit. Are they going to have them on both exits? You know, inbound, outbound, or just one? So. At this time, we're only proposing two units, so we won't be able to cover outbound and kind of It would just yeah. be essentially traffic coming into town. Oh, just the ones coming into town? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and, and it will be dealing with the state police because obviously you're going to need some if they go. Well, they're coming into town, though, right? Well, so, we dictate 100% whether we want to share that with the state police, okay, we want to share it with the FBI. You know that's the beauty of the data ownership. We okay. we decide we could even like stop Bellingham from accessing it without having to ask us first. So okay. that's great. That's that's kind of what I want. It's just not going to be the state Bellingham Medway. Everybody going in. It's just you guys. And uh, I'm sorry. Just to bounce back to uh, Councilor Jones's question, I just wanted to clarify too that if this didn't work out as the chief said, there is no commitment we could pull out it's not like a mandatory one year mm -hmm. and they actually would prorate back and refund us on a prorated basis based off of uh what we've already gone over as far as time okay that's that's great great job councilor sheridan thank you for the great presentation that was my question too about the outbound ground but in like an emergency situation how quickly could it be moved if the case was a missing person could you move it to see everybody leaving town or move the camera yeah Stationary. Oh, stationary. Yeah, we don't. And, okay. It just reads plates. Okay, but could you move it so that we can get the outbound if we need to? Or? <coughs> I I would say no. Okay. We would have to have a separate dedicated camera okay. system, and like the chief said, if if we were successful in this and we decided yeah. to go that route, okay. yeah, that's something we could discuss. Right. Thank you. Council from Jill. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the question about cybersecurity was was a great one. Um, the questions about accuracy were answered. And, and the last one, which was, was touched upon, and, and I'd just like to spend a little bit of time, I don't know, the political science 101, uh, 
talks about you know one of the main government's roles is to balance uh, liberty and security, and um, you know certainly want, we want to keep everyone safe, but we also want to you know in, in, uh, you know break down people's liberties as little as we can you know in order to keep them uh, safe. And so obviously the main thing that came up was like I wonder what ACLU has has to say about this. So that's cool that you had um, some some response uh, to that. My biggest uh, point, and you got to it at the very end, was this idea of uh, that audit log, right? Can we uh, publish searches and make that as transparent of a process, right? Because it seems like that's the biggest opportunity for some infringement on uh, liberties is, and, and, and certainly, you know, I, I trust our force and, and, uh, and, and the people on it, but, you know, anytime we're giving up some, some liberties, it's harder to, to claw it back. Um, that, that audit log, are, are you preparing to make that uh, public? Uh, is that something that, um, you know, we, we think that we can make a, a policy uh, around this so that when we uh, do a search, um, yeah, that that's, that that's information that's shared. Um, yeah, yeah um, Chief, I'll, I'll jump in with to sh explain what I've seen, uh, options I've seen other communities do. I know, um, you know, Chief Lynch and Officer Rivers will be developing a, a full-scale policy um, if you guys decide um, to move forward and feel comfortable. Um, but I have seen as part of that, some communities actually will publish their search audit as part of their transparency portal. We give them that option to do that. Um, it's a uh, CSV file, um, and the information is routinely updated. Uh, but other communities in, choose not to publish it um, on the transparency portal, and will instead um, bring it back to their elected officials in a uh, summary report on a regular basis. Or, um, you know, your chief is often coming back and talking about public safety in your um, community. And um, I've seen a lot of our customers use that opportunity as a chance to provide updates. Um, about the audit log instead of publishing it um, on the transparency tool. That, that's great. I think I would, I think I'd be, be comfortable with with either, um, but I would be less comfortable with neither. Uh, right. The, the, the biggest opportunity for uh, abuse is that either it's as small as yeah, let's see what people are leaving town or coming to town. You know, on, on a late night. You know, let's get some quick searches in. That's fun. Uh, all the way up to you know, hey, we're concerned about you know this political gathering and want to watch who's showing up to it. Not um, anything within there, I think, would be my biggest concern around something like this. So if we have if we have a commitment to transparency, um, I'd feel much better. Yeah, as Michael had mentioned too, you know, we are very transparent. We, you know, we, we have you know, like our use of force is, is is on our website, our policies. So you know, we, not everybody does that. You know, not every police department has gotten to doing that. And when they talked about the transparency portal when it was first brought up, I was like, absolutely, yeah, we could definitely end up doing that. Um, and I can tell you right now that nobody's going to sit there and look at the back of license plates for unless we're we're. It's going to be something that is pertinent to to doing it because it's really not, you know, you, you'll figure out a plate, then you have to run the plate itself to figure out who it belongs to, you know. It, it's an investigative tool is, is what it'll be used for. It's not a video camera, unfortunately. You know, it's not one of these things where, hey, did the flock pick up the accident that occurred, you know, right there in front of it? 
No, it might grab the plates, but it's not going to tell us what happened in the accident. It's not a video camera. It's not like we can open it up and look at it at any time, or it's recording like video. You know, because I think a lot of people might be a little bit more concerned about that. Mm -hmm. All it is is grabbing license plates. And as it's Michael had mentioned before, you you know, if you see an officer and it doesn't look like they're positioned to maybe do speed enforcement, but they're there, they're probably running plates. They're basically just running manually plates as they're going by. They're looking at the stickers on the back of your license plate and it's saying that it might be expired and they're looking to see if it's expired. They're looking to see if the owner might have a warrant, you know, things like that. Um, but no, I have no problem with you know, being transparent on the number of times that we end up actually accessing the data and for what reason. That's great. And the, the last piece you sort of rolled into is, you know, the last question that hits my mind is, is it worth the value that, you know, is it worth the amount that we're paying? It seems like if it can replace um, responsibilities of, of our officers, then 2500 uh, a year uh, isn't terrible. Um, but that's, you know, certainly if you ever came back to us looking for more, that would be the biggest question. How often are we using this? Is it, is it like that? If we ever got a hit on an Amber Alert and we were able to actually track down that car and grab that, you know, that child, uh, it would be absolutely priceless, you know. Um, and, and like I said, if that camera system was there um, and they were coming into town like they did on King Street, then at least we would have been able to probably figure out who possibly ended up showing that firearm. We might not have been able to charge the person just off what the individual told us, but imagine you're the person that did do that, thinking that you were never gonna get caught for doing it, and then all of a sudden we're basically knocking on your door to have a conversation. Hopefully that would deter them from ever doing that again. Um, you know, that would, you know, and if we could charge them even the better. Um, but I think, it, I, from the people that I know that have them and have a lot of them, I mean, you're looking at, what does Cranston has? I forget how many. 20 or something. 20 something. You know, some communities have 30, 40, you know, 40 of them. Uh, my, my friend in Vestavia Hills in Alabama, they, they have a number of them. And um, you know, what, what has it done for them? And it's helped to solve a lot of crimes. It's helped them to be able to investigate things that they would never be able to investigate. Um, and I'm thinking that's, that's our hope is what it will, you know, it, it'll do. It'll be used when something comes up and we need it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor Frangillo. Councilor Hamlin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you for all three of you for being here tonight. This has been very interesting. Um, my fellow counselors already asked most, most of the questions. It was really um, interested in the audit log. We can make that transparent. Um, I have another question in, in the cybersecurity of it. A question about maintenance and repairs. Like how long does the camera last and what, how do you find out if it's not working? So that's all included as part of the package. But how do you, like, they, they actually periodically will come out and make sure everything's good. If things come up that they have advancements, they actually automatically upgrade the camera. So I, so they do system, automatic system updates yep. for, Updated for you. And, well, I think yes, so our model, Councilwoman, is a, a, a software as a service-based model, so safety as a service. So we have a team that is uh, monitoring the maintenance and health of um, all of our cameras in the field. And um, if there's an issue, we will notify our customers um, and offer them a plan for how, how quickly we will come out and fix it. Um, so that is all included in the leasing agreement where you, your department will get access to our software and then they'll also get access to our team of installers, um, our permitting team, and um, our team of technicians to make sure the system is working in the best way it can. That's great. Do you have a, an average amount of time that the cameras last? 
Um, yeah, yeah. So um, it, it depends on uh, the locations, right? So um, I think um, after this conversation, uh, the chief and uh, Officer Demers will probably go back to our deployment team with their proposed locations, and we'll talk through um, permitting options and whether or not they want to co-install on um, power. Um, if they're, if we decide to go infrastructure-free and um, go with our pole that is uh, solar powered, um, then depending on the time of year, uh, we will uh, the battery will last anywhere from uh, 36 hours to a week, uh, just depending on um, how much sunlight is available. But um, when the sunlight hits it, it's constantly charging. And we also have a battery pack that we include on as an additional battery um, on the back of uh, our typical cameras. Um, that's also recharged with solar power. But is is there a is there a like a an average length of life for the life expense? So Laura, if the, if the camera breaks and you can't fix it, you're giving us another one, correct? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, so, so, but I was just, I'm just like curious, like how often do they break? How often do you have to repair? It's a great question, and, and we're we leasing, don't know yet. We're it's leasing okay. it. We're it's leasing it. If we don't know, it's okay. Yeah. No, I don't know. Laura, how long do they usually yeah. last without having if they're like repair free and and? Yes. And so our cameras uh, very rarely break, right? So um, if it's due to natural causes, we come out and fix it. It's due to vandalism and we do have that uh, small charge. I, I really am not trying to be cagey on the, uh, the battery question. It just, it depends on so many different factors, right? So um, it depends on time of year, amount of sunlight, it depends on um, on weather temperatures, on um, like cloud coverage and temperature. Um, and so um, I can provide you maybe some different specifications as a follow-up, but um, we are, are making sure that it's working as often as possible for <laughs> Of course you are. I, I understand that. Thank you. I just um, one more quick question about the 30-day, um, a 30-minute retention, a three-minute retention time is like way too little, right? I mean that's that's kind of that's crazy. I was wondering if if there were any um, users out there that did lower it from 30 days to less day amount of days in like the percentage of of the customers that have done that, or like do you? Yes. Yeah. Very rare. Very few customers um, actually will lower the retention. Um, we do make it an option for customers. So if um, your department decides they only need 21 days, um, and that's what you're comfortable with, if you guys as a town council pass a resolution as part of an agreement with, um, with us that says that you want that data retention, we will um, abide by that and uphold it. Um, but um, it, we abide by all laws. It's just very rare for people to differ from that 30-day retention. Okay, excellent. Thank you for all the information. Thank you, Councilor Hamlin. Councilor Cormier Ledger? No. I'll set. Councilor Chandler? Through you, Mr. Chairman. Great questions by the council. I'm really glad that they're worried about our rights. I appreciate that a lot. Um, thank you, Officer uh, Demers, Chief, for the presentation. Um, a couple statements and then I do have a question. So um, I think all the reasons you gave us are reasons we should do this. I appreciate that. I also, you mentioned this and this is what the public needs to understand. We do not have an expectation of uh, privacy in public. So these plates do not belong to people. Anybody can read your plate. Anyone can take a picture of your plate. Jamie could go around taking pictures with all the plates on the parking lot if he'd like to. 
I don't, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could, but I, I absolutely don't. Oh, no. Sorry, Mr. Chair. I just wanted that to I don't believe it. Go ahead, Council. Okay, so after listening to the questions, I, I never speak for the Council, but I can say, you know, we are fans of free movement, and we are not fans of detaining people by mistake at all. So with that being said, I know the representative from the company said that there, we, let me go back a second. You have something called the hot list. I heard you mention that and she mentioned that, um, where it gives you people, plates of people with warrants or anything like that. Well, my concern is how many of these people are getting pulled over by mistake? And if they are getting pulled over by mistake, the second part of the beef question of that is, how is that getting reported so we know that that's happening? Because, you know, they can read the license plate one, two, three, four, five, and you get it one, two, three, four, six, and you, oh, that guy's got a felony warrant, and all of a sudden, you know, somebody's pulled out a gunpoint and it's a mistake. So that's the part I don't like about this. Right? I, I love to address that. It's a great question. Okay. So this is a machine. Yeah. We're not. We actually have to confirm this prior to pulling it over. Um, so if we get a plate, we're not just going to automatically throw on the lights, pull up the guns, you know? <laughs> well, I would hope not, yeah. but... <laughs> no, you won't. Yeah. <laughs> so, but obviously if we, we came into that situation, that would be something that our command staff would discuss and would probably be addressed. You'd have to, basically you're going to have to confirm it through sieges. You're going to have to call, whether it be through your MDTs or calling up to the MEC and basically saying, can you run this particular plate? to make sure that the plate, you know, matches. Just like when we, we had an ALPR on a cruiser yeah. back, you know, a while back, for all the reasons that uh, Officer Demers said that, you know, the problems with it, we, we just stopped using it. And it, it really wasn't connecting to things. But if you got a hit off that, before you could act, you had to take the time to confirm that the plate on the vehicle was exactly the plate that was, was captured and that actually it was a, if it, if it said that the person was wanted for a warrant, then the, the warrant was technically active and so forth for the owner of the vehicle and everything else. But lastly, I don't know if the rep has this, is there any mechanism for, do they keep track of that? I mean, is this going on 30% yeah, I mean, of the question. time? Because you, you mentioned 70% yeah. accuracy once. Um. So, well, so, so that example, that, that I think is what's important to bring up, right? Because um, this is a, a really big concern, and of course, um, we um, have great policies and great customers with strong policies for acting, but of course, in, in the event a mistake happens, it can be really problematic for the individual um, that was pulled over, and um, that response can escalate. Um, I, when I mentioned the um, accuracy reading that we provide, that's um, what we consider an additional data point to help your officers in making the determination about how they respond, right? So um, like the chief said, you ve they verify um, that the plate that's provided in the image um, is the plate that's on the national registry, right? Um, and that's the step that they take. We provide that additional probability metric um, as a way to help them to know um, this is this response, you know, you might not, it might not be accurate. You need to double check this. Um, as a way to, to protect the officers there. Um, you know, I think this, this question is, I think, probably the mo one of the most important questions is how do we 
prevent there from being mistakes made. And that's why I think uh, having those updated databases is so important. I have customers tell us all the time that um, not every department is updating the databases um, after pulling over stolen vehicles or pulling over stolen plates. And so now that our customers have that information um, and they are able to um, pull over someone and confirm that it isn't stolen or it isn't a, um, uh, an active felony warrant, they are then going in the system and updating it and making sure that it's as current as possible. Um, so I, I think that adds a, an additional level of protection. I, I've also heard customers talk about the need to, um, as part of the response policy, right? Like if um, someone is pulling over and you're having a solid interaction, like they, you know, it's easy to confirm that it probably isn't an accurate hit, um, even after confirming on the hot list. So I think there's a lot of data points that go into how your officers are gonna determine their response in that situation. Thank you, Mr. Chandler. Thank you, Councilor Chandler. Councilor Pellegrini. Uh, through the chair, great presentation, and I think that the questions that we've asked here so far tonight have been excellent also. It's answered a lot of questions for me, I know. Um, you said you were going to start with two cameras. Are you thinking about other spots to put cameras up at a later date after you know testing these? I'm thinking that you know we want to see if how it works. How does how the whole thing works, work out? Yeah. The installation. I mean, I think Flock will do a good job with all that. But then, does it actually produce anything? Is it, right. is it yeah, worth it? A cost-benefit analysis of what have we been able to do over, let's say, a year, mm -hmm. and then if we find that it actually, oh, you know, if Flock helped us with this many cases and so forth, then maybe we end up thinking about possibly, you know, expanding. Expanding it. Okay. When would you like to implement this if it's all passed? Probably as soon as you, as soon as all the questions that need to be how asked and answered are, are, are done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. How long will it take to, to implement? Probably filling out the paperwork and doing a lease with Flock, and then that, uh, working out a date for them to come out and actually, you know, yeah. put them up. But also right. like to let the, you know, you know, probably let the public know that sure. this is what we're doing and so forth. Well, it sounds good. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Councilor Plagueri. Okay. I think, uh, I think yeah. I'm not sure there's any question that hasn't been asked. If there is, At least calls. Yeah. Uh, so, Chief, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I certainly would support giving this a shot. Let's see what it let's see what it does for us, and let's see how it helps the department, and then we go from there. Well, well, we'll wait to do anything in case anybody else has any more questions or you do receive questions from your constituents, you know, that might want to go through you to come back to us, but please give us a call mm -hmm. um, okay. if there's anything else so that we can kind of clear the air if, if there is anything that needs to be cleared up. Great. Okay. All right. Thank, Thank you very much. Appreciate Thank it. Next item on the agenda is discussion on project presentation for 121 Grove Street, which is a friendly 40B. Uh, I think representatives are here. Jamie, did you want to do a... I'll do an intro in one second. You guys need the HMF. Yeah, we'll connect. Thank you. Thank you. 
I'm really impressed that our town administrator has turned into a I'm trying to get this off my plate and out of my career, but obviously I haven't done a good job at that so far. Uh, so th thank you, Mr. Chairman. So um, before, the, uh, the, uh, before the council tonight, I want to make sure I just lead off really fast, and I know the EDC members will, will have some comments as well. We're about to see a PowerPoint presentation tonight um, on a project proposal at 120 Grove Street. I'm going to keep this as simple as I can for all of you. It's in the memo. There is legislation for action uh, following. It's not required that anyone has to do it tonight. So I make sure. Um, and uh, this is what's called a friendly 40B. Um, and so one of the requirements is to filed paperwork with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts on what's called a LIP, L-I-P, Local Initiative Project. And really what it is, in, in all the simplest terms, is saying for communities that are over 10% in their Chapter 40B percentage, it allows the town to have a little more flexibility with projects like this. And I won't get ahead of the presenter, but uh, the project you see before you tonight um, uh, requires a 25% uh, affordable housing uh, cap to it. That's a lot of units of affordable housing. Um, communities that are under 10% don't get this leisure very often. Um, it would be a much more unique project because, as we all know, there are projects like Madeline Village downtown, which when the town is under 10%, you can override local zoning, and therefore you have no control over any project or where any of the housing goes. As long as there's open land, they'll petition the state on a 40B project, the town has virtually no say, and there's almost no ability to deny a project, you might be able to mitigate some of it. This is a very different scenario. Because the town has been over its 10% cap uh, by state law, it gives the council and the community and the permitting boards a lot more flexibility to work through this. So the, the council will see the presentation tonight. I'm sure there'll be a lot of discussion points, and there's a legislation for action for the council to consider later on. The action is simply to allow the town administrator myself to be able to file the paperwork with the Commonwealth at DHCD, and I'm sure the proponent will, uh, will go a little bit more into that. So uh, that's my quick lead in, Mr. Chairman, and I leave it up to you. Uh, probably pass it over to the presenters, I would assume. Thank you. Please, and Richard, just introducing uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the council. My name is Richard Cornetta. I'm uh, the attorney working with uh, Fairfield residential development. Uh, to my left is Rob Hewitt. He's the vice president uh, and uh, the big cheese in New England for Fairfield. Uh, and Janice Hurst is uh, is joining us also from Fairfield. And I should point out we have uh, uh, John Scheib from Scheib Consulting Engineering who's been a, a, a key participant with our development team uh, both uh, during an earlier project here in Franklin uh, as well as this current proposal. Uh, Fairfield Residential is a development firm. Some of you may be familiar with the name because they recently developed a property here in Franklin down on Dean Avenue, Station 117, uh, about 257 apartment-style units down by the train station in downtown. Uh, Fairfield is a national company. They, are, uh, they specialize in, uh, in residential or, or, or development, residential development, and they have, over the last uh, 35 years, developed approximately uh, 100,000 uh, uh, residential units throughout the country. Um, and they have had experience here in Massachusetts. Um, they have a project uh, that they've completed in Stoneham as well as in Chelsea. 
but most notably, uh, they did uh, Station 117, which we believe uh, was quite a successful project here in Franklin. Um, it is, uh, as I say, 257 uh, units in six buildings, and if you haven't gone down there to see it, most of you may have, but uh, it is a, it, we, they're very proud of the project, and I think it's, it's been a good neighbor here in town, and it hasn't created a lot of the uh, concerns that were, were debated during the, the, the year of permitting, but, but I think uh, it, was, it was a success in looking at it uh, from where we stand today. Uh, just to give you an idea of what we've been doing, uh, we've been around with this project uh, uh, for about a year. Uh, last, last June, we started with the Technical Review Committee here in Franklin, and we started these discussions about the 40B, knowing that the town has exceeded their 10% their, their threshold. I think it's 11.9% or something along those lines. Uh, but uh, the concern, obviously, is that there is a, regardless of what the percentage is that the town currently uh, has, there's a huge demand for housing and affordable housing. Uh, that, is, that has not gone away. And I think uh, all of us are familiar with a lot of the conversations that have been taking place uh, with the inclusive, inclusive zoning uh, discussions, the workshops about the downtown area. Um, and so, so that's the interest that, that Fairfield brings to the community because they, uh, this is their business and they know there is a demand for housing and affordable housing. And, uh, and these folks, uh, you know, they do, uh, they do a, a, a fair job in, in, in what, they, uh, what they execute. Uh, we've, uh, we've been before the Conservation Commission. We've also been before the Planning Board in October of last year. Uh, and there should be letters uh, from both of those, uh, those parties or those groups uh, uh, commenting about this proposal. Um, most recently, we went before the, uh, the downscaled version of this board, the Economic Development Committee. They were uh, kind enough to allow us to come forward and make a presentation uh, to them as well. Um, why, I, why I say this is because, uh, without sounding brash, Fairfield, under the law, under the 40B law, could apply for approval of this project directly to the Zoning Board of Appeals. But I, I think it's a credit to Rob and his team, uh, and also their relationship with Franklin, that they want to go through this this community process. They want to they want to show the community that that they want to work with with us here uh, to make a very uh, good project, if if allowed, uh, that everyone can be uh, proud of. Um, and without stepping on Rob's toes uh, too much with his presentation, I do want to make a couple of highlights about what we're going to about to hear. There are three points I like to make and, and, and the first I, I think I've already touched on is demand. Uh, demand. There is this demand, this huge demand for affordable housing. I mean I, I talk to a lot of clients and people in the area, family, friends, that talk about uh, how difficult it is to find housing in town for whether it's their children coming out of college or whether it's young families that are locating here in Franklin. Uh, it is difficult uh, because uh, the, there just is not, I think, enough available housing, affordable housing, uh, in the community. And, uh, and to, to, to Jamie's point, even though the town is above its 10% threshold, I think there is an interest in the community not only to meet the demand for this housing, but also Franklin wants to stay ahead of that 10%, because I think the last thing we all want is someone to come in, a developer, that would be able to just 
basically muscle the town with a development that they do not want or that doesn't meet the character that we've grown accustomed to here in town. And so this is an opportunity to identify a good, a good developer, a good piece of land, and, and for you to participate in the shaping of this project that everyone can be proud of. Uh, the second point is location. We've managed to locate a piece of property here in Franklin on Grove Street. It is industrially zoned, but we believe from our research that, and I think from the history of the property that there's a reason why it hasn't been developed as an industrial property. There's a number of characteristics as to this site that prevented it from becoming an industrial property, whether it be wetlands or other uh, items. Because industrial property, they like to put a building on the site and they like it to be just a large box and whether it's a, a facility uh, or a transport facility. Um, this particular property does not allow for that. And so I believe that even though this is an industrial property, it's not an industrially desired property. And so I, I think it presents us with an opportunity here to take a property that is underperforming not, not, not being used its best, best and highest use, and, and, and present it with this type of a proposal. Also, I think the location of the property, because it's in an industrial zone, it gives us a unique opportunity because there's not a lot of residential abutters, direct residential abutters, and that's often a problem when you're introducing a project like this because everybody, uh, you know, the residents, don't, they don't like the, the, the no residents like development, let's face it. I mean, nobody likes it. It's necessary, but nobody likes it next to their home. We don't have that situation here. But this property on Grove Street is also located in an area that I think we all can be familiar with in that it's very close to the downtown and the commercial areas of town. So it's not a, a property that's being developed on the outskirts of town, which is where you typically see these 40 Bs. It's located within an area where the potential residents could actually really patronize a lot of the services and a lot of the commercial uh, offerings that we have here in town. And lastly, about the location, on Grove Street, and I hope the people, if anyone's listening on uh, the residents of Grove Street, I know that there are residential homes on Grove Street, but it's, it's, it's a heavily uh, industrial commercial area, and it runs along a, a, a corridor that is parallel to our 140. And so from a traffic perspective, um, when you introduce a development like this, that's always a big concern, is you're overwhelming an already taxed traffic system. But we have a natural system here where Grove Street, people on Grove Street could actually travel north and south and access the highways without really uh, coming on to the Route 140 corridor, which is, you know, which can get busy during the peak traffic hours. Uh, and lastly, and I think this is a good segue to throw it over to Rob and his, uh, and his presentation, is we have an opportunity here to select the developer, too, because oftentimes with 40Bs, it's a rare instance where the town knows who the developer is. They come in, they make a proposal. We have a developer here who has a history with Franklin. They've done a successful project. They're very sensitive to the characteristics and the standards that Franklin expects, and they have a good working relationship, I think, with a lot of our town departments in, in, in establishing the Station 117 project. So I think for these reasons, I understand that this can be for some to be a very controversial proposal because we're talking about more housing and there are some that just might just summarily say, ah, we don't need more housing. But unfortunately we do. And I think if we look at this 
from that perspective, and I think we have an opportunity here to participate more in shaping what this will be than allowing the 10%, the town's inventory to fall below that 10%, and then be subject to a developer to come forward that we don't have this opportunity uh, or these characteristics. So with that, sorry, I hope I didn't step on your presentation too much, Rob, but uh, well, no, no, no. Thank, thank you, Rich. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. Uh, appreciate your time tonight hearing uh, our proposal. Uh, what I'd like to briefly show you with my presentation today is the data on our proposed application. I'll let you know some of the things we're considering changing based on all the feedback we've received from the different boards and stops along the way. Um, and then solicit feedback from you and answer any questions that you might have tonight. Uh, so without any further ado, I'll jump into it. Um, as Rich mentioned, uh, Fairfoot Residential is a national, is a national company. Um, we, local, we operate as a local group here in, uh, currently we're in Burlington, we're about to move to Braintree in a few weeks. Uh, our local office, we have about 30 people. Uh, Fairfield is somewhat unique in that <coughs> we own our properties, we develop, we also build uh, through our general contracting company. So we have staff in our office that oversees the construction and also staff that oversees the leasing and the operation of the property. So we maintain control from the start to the finish. And we do that because we like to control the quality of what we build. We try to aim at the top of the market. Um, and I think you'll see that we have done that in our property at Dean Avenue, uh, Station 117. Rich mentioned some of our other projects. I won't read the list, but we have a lot going on in, in Massachusetts. We've been active here since 2001. We're here to stay, um, or all of us here are local, live and work in the area. Next time, chance. Thank you. Uh, just a few pictures of Dean Avenue. As Rich mentioned, we're proud of this. We worked uh, long and hard with the town, both during the entitlements, the design, and the construction. And uh, we're very proud of how it turned out. Uh, it's fully occupied. Uh, it's very active. Um, so. Um, some of the exterior <coughs> slide. We, in response to the demand from our tenants, uh, we are highly amenitized. So, you know, we have a lot of outdoor living space, like in the upper right hand picture. This is uh, the clubhouse space around the pool at Dean Avenue. It's about 8,000 square feet of uh, <coughs> leasing office, fitness center. Uh, we're doing more and more work from home space in response to people's demands. And uh, so the next slide, please. Um, pets are big for everyone, but particularly for renters. Uh, sometimes 40 to 50% of our renters have pets. So we cater to that as well. We have pet wash stations, like in the upper right-hand corner. We have dog walks fenced-in areas, sometimes small dogs and big dogs so to minimize conflict. Um, those are very well-received amenities. In fact, I drove by Station 117 before the hearing tonight, and I saw Dog Park getting a lot of use. So I was happy to see that. Uh, next slide, Janice. Uh, bikes, again, uh, we, we always do interior bike storage uh, inside the buildings, uh, try to create an active environment where we can and that's been all received as well. Thanks. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is just a picture of the interior of the units. Like I said, we aim it at the top, top of the market, very nicely appointed apartments. I will point out that um, our market rate units are exactly the same as the affordable units. There's no differentiation in spec. They're uniformly distributed amongst the property. Uh, we're required by the state and, and we abide by it that you know we have a uniform percentage, 25% of each unit type, evenly distributed amongst the building. So uh, you know there's no differentiation between those different unit types. Next. Uh, we've all heard about the housing crisis in Massachusetts as the governor likes to describe. Uh, we see it in that there's an incredible demand wherever we've developed. Uh, we lease up quickly. Uh, we talk about renters by necessity and renters by choice. So there's people who can't afford the first house. Uh, they're renting with us. They want to live somewhere nice, you know, amongst their peers with high amenities, you know, as a stepping stone to owning the house. Then there's people who don't want to own the house. Uh, sort of the millennial set. Some folks just prefer to rent. And then we see a lot of empty nesters who are tired of the big house, the kids are gone, but they want to stay in their community, and they don't want to have the maintenance. So we see all, all parts of that equation in our Next. Uh, Franklin, I know that there's a goal, and I know part of your planning committee will look into creating diverse and affordable housing options. We think this is an opportunity uh, to provide high quality, diverse, affordable housing, not just the affordable units, but the actual rest of the units are also more affordable than a single family home. So it's a diverse set of different unit types. Um, the proposal, we would develop 75 to 83 actual affordable units that are rented at this rents set by the state. We don't set them, we just rent them at those units. We get monitored by the state. Um, and um, and you know it's not required, but we always will agree to provide those units as affordable in perpetuity. So you know, deeded affordable units that aren't going to come off the town's affordable housing rolls like sometimes happens. Um, and because it's a rental community, 100% of the units in the development, even if they're not technically affordable rents get counted on the town's uh, subsidized housing inventory. That's what clicks up to that 10% level. So that's one of the uh, incentives the state has provided to develop rental housing is that 100% of those units uh, will count towards your goal. And as Rich mentioned, and I described, we see singles, we see young couples, we see empty nesters, we see young families, sort of the beginning and towards the end of life, um, in the middle are busy buying homes and raising their kids. Uh, so right as we were starting to look at this development, Franklin came out with the friendly 40B process, um, trying to get ahead of different developments coming in and to be thoughtful about what they decide to do. Uh, we welcome that. We prefer to be collaborative. We like to make these stops and get feedback. In fact, we've taken longer than was required for the 30-day you know, window of review because we thought it was important to get more feedback so that we're 
we're ready when we actually get to the zoning board, if we do, and we've got everybody's feedback impacted. This is our project team. Uh, Rich is with me. As we get into more of the design and the technical and the peer reviews with the zoning board, all these folks will come into play. Next. Uh, process, which is you've seen as the Springly 40B process. Um, as part of that, we've, we've made our application, which was required, and then we've made our stops along the way to the Conservation Commission. In fact, we're engaged with them in an ad-run process now, which was one of their recommendations, to define the limits of the wet one before we actually finalize the site plan. Uh, we stopped at the planning board, got a good comment letter from them, in which we've addressed a lot of their comments, which I'll show in a minute. Um, I went to the Economic Development Subcommittee uh, last month, uh, had a lot of questions and feedback there. And then we've met, uh, of course, with the town uh, department head meeting and got a lot of feedback, uh, which we've incorporated. Here tonight, we're town council, depending on uh, the level of support we get, we would submit for site eligibility, which is the next step to DHCD through a WIP. Uh, that basically the state looks at our application, makes sure we're qualified as a developer, what we propose is in scale with the town, in, in process with the rules that the state has set for 40Bs, and then they provide the town a 30 or 60 day window to provide additional feedback. If they judge it's acceptable, they would uh, issue a site eligibility letter. At that point, we're allowed to go to the uh, zoning board. They start their process. It typically takes six months of hearings on different technical topics. Peer reviewers are hired by the town, funded by us as part of the development process, and we would vet that fully, and then they are the uh, authority that decides yes or no on the development. Thanks, uh, James. Uh, I think most people are familiar with the site. We're about midway between Route 140 and King and Washington Street on the south, right near the intersection of Beaver and Grove Street, kind of surrounded by that green, green mass of the state forest. And I'll show a little closer view in a minute. Next. Uh, as Rich mentioned, it's 32 acres. There's a single-family home and a few outbuildings, woods, wetlands. Uh, we've, we've been to the Franklin Historical Commission. They've confirmed that the existing structures are not historical. I uh, wanted to check that out. There's no sensitive areas uh, in terms of endangered species or habitat for vernal pools. There are wetlands. That's why we're in front of the Conservation Commission. Not in a floodplain or a wetland well protection district. Uh, no direct residential abutters. We're abutted by the state forest, uh, power lines, and the uh, substation, electric substation, and Grove Street. And we have talked during the technical review session, the utility infrastructure to support the project is available in Grove Street. This is the site plan of the 32 acres, not really much to see there. Uh, this is kind of a inserting our concept site plan, which has already started to evolve since this point, but as I mentioned, state forest, we've highlighted the trails. There's a trail that comes onto the site. It's noted that it's private property. Uh, we would encourage continuing that trail and, and enhancing trails to the site as part of our development. 
uh, the power lines along the bottom left, and then the substation uh, and industrial uses across the street. Uh, so our, that's a picture of Dean Avenue in the bottom right, just for context, but our proposal is for 300 to 330 apartments. Uh, given some of the site constraints with the wet ones and some of the comments we've heard, you know, we're going to be on the low end of that for sure. Um, mix of one, two, and three bedrooms. The state does require 10% three bedrooms. Uh, other than that, we have roughly a split of 50, 51, and two bedrooms, which was well received at, at Dean Avenue. As I mentioned, we would restrict the affordable units in perpetuity. Uh, we're allowed to give up to 70% local preference to Franklin residents for those affordable units. We have a lottery at the beginning to award those units, and so Franklin residents get to the top. We're always supportive of that. And as I mentioned, 100% of the units count on the SHI implement, which gives some protection down the road for Franklin once the census resets that denominator. As I mentioned, we do a lot of amenities, so we focused on work from home spaces, every project that gets larger, along with our package rooms for Amazon deliveries, which are never ending and uh, <laughs> hard to deal with, uh, with with that many people. Um, the normal outdoor amenities, we've started to do pickleball and some sort of active things outside, um, possibly some public gardens, uh, community gardens has been well received, always through the dog parks, as I mentioned. We'll likely end up with at least three acres of woods that we'll protect and we'll develop uh, that border the state forest. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll continue and enhance the trails. Uh, we've got some potential for some ride sharing and a shuttle stop. Um, you know, we're close to the train station. We're about a mile and a half up to at Forge Park. We're about two miles each way to the highway exits. Um, there is, as you know, some nice emerging retail and usable stuff along Grove Street. But you know, Franklin Village is the biggest nearest large retail center. So you get in your car to drive to all those places. So we're, we always are gonna check out the demand and see if we can enhance that for people. Uh, next slide, James. Uh, we'll have a combination of four and five story structures as proposed, uh, working with the grades in that site. Um, we have elevators in all buildings and two bike storage. Um, we try to build in dens and work from home little nooks in a lot of our units, uh, just meeting the demand, and that's been really well received. I mentioned the affordable units are all the same spec, uniformly distributed. Uh, so our, our yield in terms of units per acre is about 10 units per acre, which is a relatively low density. Uh, it's less than the 15 units per acre that the state has been promoting for these MBTA communities. Um, our average unit size is around 1,000 square feet. The one bedrooms will be smaller, seven or 800, and two bedrooms will be 11 or 12. Um, parking, our demand is usually 1.6 spaces per unit to 1.8. We're targeting 1.7, but some of the feedback we've received is, you know, be sure you need that parking before you build it. So we're gonna look at that carefully. Might consider some, you know, areas that we could add parking if needed, but we won't develop them up front because uh, we don't want to do more impervious area than we need to. 
we've been doing more and more electric vehicle charging stations and ability for people to charge electric vehicles as that demand increases. So we're, we're doing a lot of extra power, you know, thinking ahead to when we keep adding those in the future. Next slide. Uh, I mentioned we've got a lot of feedback. Uh, this was the site plan and our initial application. Grove Street is on the bottom. We've got the five residential buildings and then the clubhouse in the middle. Um, some of the feedback we're considering, we have to weigh all these things as we pull together our final proposal for the zoning board, but there was some comments on those rear two buildings up to the plan right, uh, but the state forest. There's some thought of consolidating those buildings to reduce the massing from the state forest and provide a little more open space. So that was a great uh, suggestion that we're looking at. Uh, the building right along Grove Street that's close uh, was one of the waivers we had requested. We're required to list our waivers that we will list when we get to the zoning board. That building's closer than the allowed setback. So we've been asked to consider moving that back so it's not as on top of the road. That's definitely in the consideration. Um, we can reduce the building height significantly by making a flat roof system rather than a pitched uh, roof. We've done that successfully recently in Milford and that turned out very nicely to help reduce the scale. We're also going to four stories on some of the buildings, um, you know, working into the grade to reduce the massing. This site is so large, 32 acres, those rear buildings are going to be way out of the distance of the road, but um, doesn't read that way from the plan, obviously. Uh, we may incorporate the clubhouse into one of the buildings just to reduce the overall number of buildings in the impervious area. Uh, we're, we're considering a ride-sharing kind of shuttle pickup stop in one of the central areas where it would be convenient for folks. Um, we've been asked to conduct a formal traffic study, which we will do. We've, it's been six particular intersections have been suggested. That's where we'll start with. That'll be peer-reviewed with the zoning board, so uh, we're, we'll work with them. Uh, we were asked to file an ANRAD to define the limits of the wetland. We're in the middle of that process now. Uh, that's been helpful. Uh, asked to consider reducing the parking. Uh, we're, we're looking at that. You know, we want to make sure we have adequate parking for people, but we don't want to have more than is needed because that would be wasteful. Um, <coughs> We've already incorporated the fire department comments. Uh, you know, they're okay with the building type and size and height, but they wanted 360 degree access around all the buildings, which we've accommodated. Um, we've added some additional EV charging stations already. Um, we've enhanced the connectivity of the state forest. Uh, and uh, one of the comments was, helping to provide access to this multi-use trail that's planned for pedestrians and bikes along Grove Street, possibly connecting down to the rail trail, which is, is a win-win for us, enhances it for our residents, and provides some good feedback to the town. Uh, this was a concept rendering. This is one of our other projects, uh, just to show kind of this four or five uh, story split. This one has a flat, I mean a pitched roof, so it's taller than we would propose if we went to a flat roof. Flat roofs are more expensive, a little more complicated, but they are also can reduce the overall density of the site, and make the buildings feel taller, smaller, 
and also we can put most of the mechanical equipment up shielded in the in on top and it kind of cleans up the outside next chance this is just an illustration you know uh, with the pitched roof you're looking at a 60-foot building we can get down to 52 feet with a flat roof uh, in that five-story portion next uh, some of the benefits we see for the residents the large parcel open space adjacent to the state forest um, all the amenities I've described that we will provide great access to 495 uh, the commuter rail station at Forge Park which is a uh, huge for us we always like to be near a train station and pretty convenient to shopping Franklin Village and then some of the local uh, uses along the way uh, this that's just a picture showing you know all those uses next uh, as I said great access to the forest potentially to the rail trail uh, along Grove Street uh, so we're excited about exploring that yeah, go ahead thanks so, uh, the, some of the early concepts for that mixed-use path along Grove Street, which we would provide access and land to do, um, is shown on the right with the bike and the rail trail that we got that from uh, the town department. Uh, I think benefits overall to the public and the town of Franklin significantly increase the tax assessment over the existing use. We're, our projections are probably $800,000 per year and taxes once we're fully stabilized and all rented up versus about 13,000 today as the uh, basically a single family on that large parcel uh, there is ample infrastructure in Grove Street uh, of course we'll pay our connection fees and any improvements needed but there's no big improvements needed to services development uh, no adverse impact impacts on adjacent residential neighbors since there aren't any and positive impacts for the local retailers I've listed some that uh, we've discovered as we've uh, been exploring the site um, traffic as Rich mentioned is concentrated away from downtown Franklin at least for commuting and for kind of local stops on the retail uh, the potential connector will be a nice benefit um, we're happy to contribute to that as part of our mitigation uh, that will be established with the zoning board and of course we have to mitigate any traffic impacts our initial review we're not going to overwhelm any intersections uh, there'll probably be some retiming of some of the signals to accommodate the different levels of traffic and uh, that would be on our, our ticket uh, next obviously this continued contributes towards the state's need for affordable housing would increase the town's SHI um, uh, we had a presentation at the economic development subcommittee it looks like after the next census the at least the town planners projection was that the town would be I think ten and a half percent but in 2030 in seven years uh, looks like there'll be some if nothing else would develop that would town would drop over ten percent and be at the mercy of those uh, you know other developers that haven't been within the town so um, also as I mentioned we'll contribute towards a trail uh, fees as part of our building permits uh, next slide 
as I mentioned, we'll, we'll do a traffic study and mitigate any impacts. There'll be some benefits to the town there. Next. Uh, no impacts to the abutters. Next. Uh, other things we'll be studying during the zoning board process, lighting, so there's no off-site light spill, uh, recycling, trash, will all be appropriately handled just like we did at Dean Avenue. Uh, we'll go through extensive design review of our plans and all the engineering as part of the zoning board process, and they would determine appropriate mitigation. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, limit the exposure for down the road exposure. Next. Uh, we've got a limited number of waivers. Obviously, we need a waiver for residential in this industrial zone. It doesn't allow residential. As Rich alluded to, the site's been marketed for a number of years as an industrial property. Hasn't really gotten many takers, uh, mostly because of topography, not an ability to build a big uh, kind of industrial, at least from what I understand from talking to industrial users. Uh, we can comply with most of the current dimensional requirements. Uh, the, the one setback I mentioned, we're probably going to be able to meet by moving that one building along the road back. Uh, zoning only allows three stories. We would like to do four and five. Uh, that's most effective in terms of uh, both for costs and efficiency and reducing impervious area. Um, We'll fully vet that whole design process with the zoning board. Uh, Franklin Fire Department did confirm they can service those buildings at that height. Uh, lots of minor waivers for retaining walls. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, we're working with the Conservation Commission. As part of 40B, you don't have to uh, abide by the local wetland bylaw. You have to abide by the state wetland bylaw, but we're working to include the the local bylaw as much as we can. Uh, next slide. Uh, so, obviously we're here tonight. We've been to all the other stops that were required by the town's process. Uh, depending on the outcome tonight, our next step would be to submit our application uh, to the state for site eligibility. If they come back positive, and we expect that they would, based on our experience with them and our proposal, uh, then that would allow us to go to the zoning, zoning board and start the public hearing process. We think that kind of from here to the end of that process, probably nine or 12 months based on our experience. So lots of opportunities for additional comments and vetting and checking. Next. Uh, in closing, we think this project will provide diverse and affordable rental housing in Franklin. Uh, would provide local preference to Franklin residents. 100% of the units add to your its HI. It's a very convenient location for residents. It's close to the train station, highway, and shopping. We've got all the required public infrastructure in place. Uh, less traffic impact than a development downtown. Uh, we have opportunities for mitigation for offsite improvements like the multi-use path. Permitting process with the zoning board allow for a full and extensive vetting with pros and cons, including peer reviews uh, that we'll pay for. And uh, the 40B process to date and moving through the zoning board allows us a lot of opportunity to get feedback 
uh, address that feedback, make the project better, and uh, really try to collaborate so that we end up with a development that we're all proud of. And again, we're excited because we've developed in Franklin before and we have confidence in the town. Uh, we have a great relationship and uh, we'd like to uh, repeat it again with a new project. So thank you very much. I'm happy to answer any questions or we're interested in your feedback. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Question from the council. I think I'll start with uh, the EDC group because uh, they have the most information. Uh, Councilor Hamlin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you all for being here again. It's good to see you. Um, and I, I think we should, it's worth noting that this is the first time anyone has had to go through our new 40 process. And so I thank you for going through all of the steps that. Um, we have set up for you so that you do get as much feedback as possible. And, um, and that I think the fact that you're working with a conservation agent to, to work on the wetland study is really important. It shows that you want to work with us. Um, also, um, I started to break down the, the things that I think we said just at the economic development subcommittee that um, you put up on your, on your slide. So it's obvious that um, you have, um, you're listening to us, lowering the amounts of units, um, making, lowering the height, um, the less dense, less density, uh, moving that front building back a little bit, that setback I think was a big issue with a lot of people. Um, and and um, I think it's, it's important to note that um, the density you say is 10 units per acre, and so that's, it is a lot less dense than um, I think people would imagine that would be there. And as we, you know, as we do save a lot of open space, we do have to make sure that we uh, allow for new growth so that our budget, we don't, um, we can pay for our thing, things that we want here in town as well. And so there's this big balance that we have to um, think about all, this, all the time when we're um, going through these kind of processes. Um, I did think of one other thing. I think um, maybe uh, Councilor Frangillo and I were speaking with uh, the chair after you were here, I think, and we thought maybe a sidewalk to Beaver Street Playground to connect the kids that might be there to the playground that's around that area and to make it safer. That was one of the things that I think we all think is really important because it goes to the recreation department that's right on Beaver Street as well. Uh, did you have that down already? Did you yes, forget about yes. that? No. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure we got that um, out, out in, in the open. And also, it's good that the fire department is um, okay with the, the height of these things. You know, we're buying a new tower truck and um, we, we, need, we need donations to afford to pay for it. Like, just looking at me like, <laughs> Um, I just ask for big stuff, you know, that's what that's right. my job is I ask for all the big things that would be really super, um, but but seriously, um, I feel like this is a real, it can be really controversial, but you are working with, with us and you are paying attention, I feel like you've listened to some of the planning board comments as well. Um, one of the questions, another question I have is, is uh, 
you you said that you keep your properties, but have you, haven't you sold Station 117? We did, yeah. This last end of the cycle, like things were too good to pass up. So our properties are always um, desired by kind of institutional investors. So we sell to pension funds. They like to hold it, you know, for 10 or 20 years, just to get that steady cash. Did, well, then I guess you don't, I mean, you might plan on keeping this one, but you might sell it, so. Yeah, we would hold it for a time, but there's always the opportunity to sell. But what we found is that people who are buying our product, they're similar uh, institutional investors, so they're keeping up the property, they're playing by the rules. Uh, we haven't had any problems when we've transferred it. Yeah, it was just, the market was just too good to pass up uh, the last couple of years, and, and that has since evaporated. Uh, obviously, I think the only um, concern we would have would be that it would, if it does get sold, it would be sold to someone who would um, keep, um, keep track of the the housing, the SHI, you know, the, the affordable housing units in that area, like you would you would do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's one reason to deed them in perpetuity, so that if it does transfer hands, that's always that's always there for you. Right. And we're used to the zoning board putting some conditions in if if things are transferred, they have some approval rights and they mm -hmm. right. need to make sure that they abide by all the permits. <coughs> I'd be shocked if that wasn't part of uh, the conditions for that. Thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna let my fellow counselors uh, ask their questions. I'm sure there's a lot more. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Councilor. Councilor Frangelo. Sure, I, I love Councilor Hampton because she saves me my voice. <laughs> Took away half my spiel, that's, that's good. Uh, I just wanted to reiterate the, the comments that, that they've heard, uh, but I still feel um, pretty similarly, and I'll make them concise. Reasons that I love this uh, project, uh, A, any opportunity to uh, get more revenue out of a parcel. It's something that had been there, sitting there for a while, wasn't being um, made better use of, made more productive industrially, um, and we're gonna be able to just way increase the value uh, to town. That's uh, a good thing without adding to any infrastructure liabilities. That's a good thing. Uh, adding housing, affordable, diverse housing options. Uh, we know that we need, and it helps us uh, attract and retain uh, you know, businesses uh, who want to come to town, um, all good things. And, and, and really the, the biggest detractor still is the location, right? That uh, it's in a space where you can't go anywhere without the use of a car, uh, right? Traffic is not a product of people, it's a product of people in cars. And so if we uh, put a unit like this uh, away from uh, our uh, businesses and um, the places that we want them to go, our public services and all that, if we push it away from them, then they're only going to be adding um, to, our, to our traffic, and, and that's too bad. And so to that point, my biggest ask, you know, if, if we do move forward, and what I love um, you know, is exactly what, what's been discussed. I love your uh, willingness to help us out with that multi-use path uh, down Grove Street, uh, raise, protect it wide, 
uh, multi-use path would really make that much safer um, space for, for people to uh, access uh, SNET um, and get down Grove Street in general. Um, and the other opportunity would be down uh, Beaver. Right? If you're ever going to, you know, if anyone were to ever bike from your unit to our downtown, um, we would need uh, to improve the safety of that's uh, the end of the street, or your end of the street. Uh, those, are, those are my main comments. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor Fungello. Councilor Sheridan? Yeah, it's covered, yeah. Councilor Jones? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, we did hear this whole presentation at the EDC level. There were a few things that came up. Um, one of the things that was mentioned, and I'm just going to mention, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you said 43, expected about 43. Um, yeah, we did a preliminary. Yeah, preliminary okay. estimates were about forty-three school-age children. And you estimated, if I remember correctly, about eight hundred thousand dollars revenue. Correct. And if I recall from our conversation, it actually works out that with forty-three students in that facility, that eight hundred thousand dollars is offset by six hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, which is what would be the cost to have forty-three kids in our school system. So, I mean, it's really not a big benefit there from that perspective. Uh, my, other, my other thing that I'm wondering, too, is it, it, as a solely heavy or, you know, high-density housing development, one of the things, A, of course, I'm going to bring up the same point I did last time at the, at the EDC level, this is an industrial zone property. I don't necessarily like seeing part of our industrial zone going residential. Uh, just like it did against our will over on uh, the Bellingham side of town. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that kind of baffles me from a development perspective is many of the communities, even the ones that are being built in and around Charlestown and Everett and Somerville, um, they're kind of gearing their development around kind of a village style appeal where it's got not only the amenities that the people who live there want to use, but it, have, it might have like a market, or it might have some kind of um, you know, recreational thing built into it. And it might even have like a work, working type um, building or someplace where a small business might want to set up and put up shop where people might be able to work locally, right? Just within the residential neighborhood. But this doesn't contain any of that. And the other thing I'm wondering too is as part of your project, you don't really seem to include a lot of green initiatives. I don't really see any kind of solar or, or anything that would kind of offset the utility costs that would be absorbing. You would know, be, be basically repurposing uh, the town's utilities, the water, the sewer, and the electricity, but no real, nothing yet in my presentation that I've seen that would say solar panels that the roof that could offset the cost of what's going to be, because uh, the town of Franklin does support the stretch code, that would require future electrification for all electrical vehicles that would eventually be on that property. How would you offset that? You know, and so on and so forth. I don't really see much of that presentation. Yeah, I probably didn't add that in, and I should have. You know, we, we obviously were used to the stretch code, which is, ends up being pretty highly efficient in our buildings. Most of that energy savings gets passed on to the residents. Um, in some locations, we have been doing, you know, solar ready for the roofs. We're starting to explore that. We don't have any developments where we added solar panels yet, but we're we're planning for that. Uh, our project in Chelsea, uh, we have 
we have wiring up to the roof for future solar when, when it makes sense for us. So we're always looking for good ideas like that, and um, so we'll definitely focus on that. But ultimately, you're going to be purposing all the utilities straight from the town. Correct. Right. No, no real green initiatives towards property built in at the moment. At this point, that is okay. And I have to follow. I have to follow with you know, Hamlet and Jello in regards to. Um, it's not in the best location. A, it's an industrial, and B, you're you're in a busy Grove Street neighborhood where it's going to have already a, a ridiculous amount of traffic associated with the trucks. I do know we've got uh, Kenwood Circle right there, which is a couple of blocks away. Um, you have many of our other industrial properties that are that are over there, um, where it's going to add to the traffic. But one of the comments that was made at our EDC meeting was walkability. The ability for residents to be able to get from where they are to where our amenities are, which is mainly downtown. And it's this location, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think the project's good, it's just like the 117 stations, but um, its general location is really, really, as far as a residential project is concerned, is off the beaten path. It's a tough spot to sell that size of a development for residential and not expected to have some kind of tremendous impact on that neighborhood. And the neighbors, constantly jealous, not wrong. This is, this is really going to be where a person has to drive. They have to drive up to the train station, they have to drive to the parks, they have to drive to the grocery stores, they have to drive to get to, to the rural restaurant downtown. Yeah, it's gonna, everything's gonna require them transporting themselves. And I just don't know how you could mitigate that significantly with this many residents. So, um, Mr. Chairman, I apologize for taking so much time. I'm pretty much done. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor Jones. Councilor DeLocco. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, <clears throat> I think your 117 project came up awesome, but have you done a traffic study on Grove Street? Uh, we haven't done a formal traffic study. No. Okay, so I just want to let you know that I am a truck driver. And I did deliver oil on 121 Grove Street the other day and I put 150 gallons in, which takes about 11 minutes. There was eight tractor trailers that went by me when I was there. Eight. I personally think Grove Street should be all industrial, not just, not just think the whole thing should be. Um, I'm concerned about Beaver Street. There's a lot of traffic there now. What, what are you going to do to? I mean, when you dump all these other people on there, it's going to back up all the way to the end of Beaver Street. I mean, it's almost there now. On my sheet, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the, the issues I had. And your affordable rent, do you know how much that would be? Yeah, they're set by the state. Currently, affordable rents, I think, are range from 1800 to 2300 1800 to $2,300. That's affordable. They, they go up or down every year. We just rent if the rates were allowed. And that's for one bedroom? Yeah, bed one bedroom is at the 1800 the two bedrooms are 23 or 24, I think, currently. To me, that's not affordable, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, and how many local contractors do you use when you build a place? Great question. You know, we get 
better pricing usually from local contractors. Um, we just have to make sure they're qualified and we have, we bid to anybody who's qualified. So you, everything's a bid process? Yes. So you say you don't have your own? Like uh, your company doesn't have? We're our own general contractors. So right. all of us staff of four to eight uh, professionals on the site, but okay. we'll hire all the sub-consultants. So. Okay. And did you hire a lot down at 117, do you know? Um, I don't know any details, but I can find out for you. Okay. Okay, all right. I'll set Councilor Council Chandler. Through you, Mr. Chairman. Hi, everyone, thank you. Um, I always like to say something nice first, so. <laughs> to Councilor Jones's point, um, about the industrial versus the apartments. I learned from a gentleman in the audience tonight who I respect his opinion that not a lot of industrial would be able to win to that, that spot because of the wetlands and everything. So you do have one positive there. And um, next, um, Mr. Canetta opened the door for this question. Um, why at 117 do you have no affordable units, but here now you have 25%? Wait. Yeah, so. How does that work? Station 117 was a rezone through the town, and so there was no ask for affordable units at that time. So, from our perspective, you know, we lose money on the affordable units and we have to gain it on the others. So, mm -hmm. we would love to do a variety of units and prices and just not have that affordable complexity. But then we did, uh, we got a special permit from the planning board for that project. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Mr. Chandler, if I could, uh, oh, sure. I, I was also, uh, I was involved in that project um, and uh, the, the expense to clean that project, it was a, it environmentally was, uh, was a mess. And so that project was very expensive to clean and I think, uh, that was in consideration. I think uh, uh, Jamie's former predecessor, Mr. Nutting, was involved, in, and, and I credit him for recognizing that that was an issue. Um, so there were a lot of mitigation measures that went into that, that project. To make that happen. So uh, that, that might clarify the point. I'm well aware of that building and not down that Abbey. Okay, I appreciate the, that information. And, and I have to agree with Council at the local. The biggest concern I had about the whole traffic study was that Beaver Street light. Because mm -hmm. it backs up, all of a sudden you've got the tracks there now. You know, and there's a lot of sports there. And I mean, three, say 350 apartments. I mean, it's a lot of cars, right? But I'm really interested to see that part of the traffic study. And that concerns me the most, is that light at Beaver Street. Um, Let's see, what else do we have here? Um, Mr. Taberner, um, is it true that the zoning is for multifamily or apartment are not allowed in an industrial district? So this isn't even allowed there? Uh, that's correct. They're going with a, a 40B. Yeah. For that reason, it would be allowed for the town wants to see that. Uh, but uh, multifamily is not an allowed use in an industrial zone. 
so no matter what we say tonight, they still need to get that waiver? Or is it what we say gives them the waiver? Well, it, the ZBA would have to approve whether, whether you like the project and, and vote to have the papers filled out and set to the state, or you don't, the CBA is the decision maker on um, whether they get a comprehensive permit or not. Okay, so, um, so we're yeah. not even in the loop. No, well, you're in the loop. I mean, the fact of the matter is, your support means a lot. If whether you support something or you didn't set against it, it means an awful lot. You're representing the town, mm -hmm. and that's what your job is right now, to so do what's best for the job town. So, um, and it is a friendly 40B. Um, they don't have to actually go with the friendly 40B process. They could go directly to ZBA, could have done that months ago, and tried to get through ZBA process in, in that way. Um, but it's, it's a lot harder for them to do so, to, to go that way. Yeah. I mean, and we do appoint them, so. But, um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, let me bring up, sorry to take so long. No, that's this, okay. This is very important. Yes, this is a very important issue with the apartments of this town. Um, the parking. I know you hear from a bubble in this town how they don't want any parking. People want parking. They need parking. That's just my opinion. 1.2 spots. I, I don't, you know, it's yeah. not good. I know you didn't use that number, but. Yeah. yeah, we would never do less than, and we've proven to ourselves and other developments that is adequate because if there's not enough parking spots, someone's going to go rent at a place where there are enough parking spots. I just don't want to build more parking and just throw more land than we have to. So. You're right, it's a balance and I mean, there's a lot we've of already people. heard from the people that don't want parking that people can't ride bikes from it. So we need parking. That's my opinion. I just need to get this out. Yeah. Okay. No offense, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me just finish up here, please. Let the developers decide how much parking we need. <laughs> No, I gave them my opinion. Okay. Which doesn't mean much here. Um, so in closing, I feel you have the votes for your friendly B, but I need to face the public right now and they are not happy with apartments. And I think it's gonna be a big issue in the fall. Mm -hmm. And I, I just I've just seen enough. But I, I appreciate everything you're doing. You've done a great job so far, with all due respect. So, but I'm going to leave it at that, that I just can't support more apartments. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor Chandler. Councilor Cormier-Lucas. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <coughs> I've been very quiet tonight on purpose. Yes. Um, and thank you for the presentation and for all of the extra steps with this application because as was noted you could have cut some corners and not gone before so many groups um, to councilor hamblin's point i think it's perhaps understandable but also disappointing when a large developer sells because we are looking for community buffers we are looking for people that are going to not just build but also stay and contribute to the community 
and not just kind of use us as a way to make money and then move on to the next big project, if you know what I'm saying. So I do appreciate that you said that the, the new management company over there, from what I understand, all of the rents have gone up. Um, there's two month uh, required uh, in writing that the tenants have to give in order to you know, get out of their lease and go on. So it's, it, there are some challenges over there at that complex right now, which is unfortunate because you talk about apartments being a path to home ownership. And it's kind, it's kind of the, kind of exactly the opposite. We, 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 we have people in town that want to get out of renting and go into a small home or a condo, but there's a bottleneck down there at the bottom. Um, I'm not particularly seeing a ton of people from Franklin that are looking for a high rent situation. They're looking for a reasonable house to move into. Um, kind of, and if we're going to talk about affordable housing, to me, we'd be talking more like Palomino Drive or you know an area where we could actually build smaller, more affordable homes with deed restrictions on them to help people, not just more expensive apartments. Um, that being said, apartment buildings tend to be more transient. You know, we're not talking about people that are truly rooting here in Franklin. They may, you know, stay a year or two because of the job, but they're going to move on. And I think that's part of the overall concern with just more apartments in general, on top of parking, on top of the location. Um, as a developer, though, have you guys thought about contributing back to the towns where you built? Like, do you? Contribute to any nonprofits? Do you contribute to the towns that are doing <coughs> projects like Councilor Hamblin mentioned? We'd love to have the Fairfield fire truck, right? Like, there's just so many. Well, I'm I'm, I'm being serious, right? I mean, you're, you're you stand to make you know considerable millions of dollars building this development, right? Your business to make money, but our job to our you know to our residents here is okay. We have this gigantic budget to try to make work with a long list of things and a lot of hands. So I think if you want to be a community partner and go forward, you'd have a lot more respect from a lot of people here and in town if they were able to say, oh, okay, you not only helped with some sidewalks or some parks or the help the fire department or helped, I mean, my God, even the Little League or the football team needs some help, right? Like just, and I've said that to other corporate sponsors that have come before us, but please just kind of keep that in mind as you um, go forward. Um, those are my those are my comments. Thank you. Thank you, Council Cornell. Council Blake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As long as I don't start coughing. All I'm hearing from the people out on the streets is that we have too many apartments in this town now. We don't need more apartments. And I have to agree with them. You said that um, 117 down there on DNM is all filled. It is? I'm very unhappy to hear that you sold it and that people come forward to us and they want to pass something, they get it passed, and then they turn around and sell it. And I know a few of the other councils have said the same. I don't like that either because I don't think that's showing that you really care about the town. You're caring just about your own pocket. And I'm not for that at all. Lived in Franklin all of my life. And to see the way some of the things that are going on now, it just, it, it, it's bad. It really is. Um, and in your, one of your uh, things over here, it said, ample water. 
I never can understand that. Ample water, we have water bands, and I know that it's from the state, you know, what we're allowed to take from water and whatever. But how can we keep building and doing all of this when we don't have ample water, as far as I'm concerned, all right? Um, I'm very concerned about Beaver Street with the light, the traffic that's going to be brought down that way. It's, um, it's not gonna work. Uh, I thought we were gonna be voting uh, a zoning change, Brian, and we have nothing to do with a zoning change for this, because right now it's industrial, correct? Good, right. A, uh, a 40B uh, does not, it, it, it does not really matter the underlying zoning in an area, okay? So that, uh, it's, it's just like any other 40B that's come to town. It doesn't, you just put that aside mm -hmm. and they deal with um, what is, what the parcel actually is in adjacent community, adjacent neighborhoods and things of that nature. But the, the zoning does not matter on, on, on 40B. So. And that, that's too bad. That's too bad because then we would be able to say yes or no according to zoning. Um, right now, all that land is industrial, correct? So um, let's see. We're over the 10% for affordable housing in town. So I do a pros and cons list whenever I'm looking at this. And when I see that we're already over 10%, we don't have to push for affordable housing because again, as far as I'm concerned, um, I don't think they come out to being affordable. I heard you from out there when you said how much rents were. I can't believe it. They can't, people can't afford it. That's what I'm hearing again out on the street. But you don't have anything to do with that now because you sold Dean Avenue. And it's going up, and it's going up, and it's just not fair. Same with Westerly, down off of, um, what is the question? Going into Bellingham. Yeah, that keeps going up for the people, too. Um, I want to see some actual affordable house, housing units so that people can, uh, can move into them, live there, and not worry about the next month or the month after that what it's going exactly. to be. It's going to be too expensive for them, and they're going to be leaving. Um, I'm trying to see some things here that I had. And you keep comparing this project to, to Dean Avenue. I've talked to people on Dean Avenue, and they're not happy with that project that's down there. They just, um, the people are not happy that are living there. And if they had the whatever to get out of there, they would. You know, um, how, I don't know how we're doing over here across the street with these apartments. Uh, have they, um, do we know if they started to rent across the street? They're not done yet. They're not, well, no, they're not done yet, but I didn't know if they had an office that was taking uh, some applications or anything. No, I don't think so. No. All right. I, Mixed feelings, mixed feelings, I'm sorry to say. Okay? Thank you. Thank you, Councilor Blady. Um, I have a couple of comments. And uh, I guess I understand and respect all my fellow counselors and their opinions, and I think they've asked a lot of uh, very good questions. 
some of which we really don't have answers to yet. Uh, you know, the delineation of the wetlands, uh, which is ultimately going to decide really how many units you're going to be able to put there. Uh, the 300 number is a number that, you know, I think is high. Uh, again, that's my opinion. Uh, I also think that the 65 to 70 foot, uh, I have an issue with, with that. Those are really my two biggest issues, is number of units and the height of the building. Uh, and I understand the uh, uh, traffic, and, and again, we don't have uh, we don't have a traffic report yet. Uh, I just think there's enough unknowns here that uh, I'd really like to have the answers to before I decided uh, which way. Uh, how I felt totally about the project. The positive things, uh, I do think uh, the friendly 40B uh, puts the council really in the Zoning Board of Appeals in control of who builds what in the town. And that's uh, that's something we should not lose sight of because if we were to drop below the 10%, we don't have control anymore. It's all state. And there are, there are many bum contractors out there. And uh, you have no control over who that is that's coming in and what they're building. So I believe that having this affordable that you can at least work with the contractor to come up with solutions to or ideas to fix concerns of counselors and residents is a very important part piece of this I think if this were to go forward pick the number only because I don't like the number three I'm going to pick 295 and just say, if that were the number, uh, I look at our SHI and say, for the next 10 to 15 years, we don't have to worry about them. And we then control 40B's building in town uh, and what contractor comes into town to build. Uh, and I just, I'm just concerned that I don't have enough good information to make an intelligent decision on what's before us this evening. Again, that's just me. Um, is there anyone in the audience that? Oh, Jamie. Yeah. You can go to the audience first. I just want to wrap up with a couple okay. of closing Okay, I'll let, I'll let you. Thank you. I'll let you wrap up in a minute. Is there anyone in council chambers uh, that would like to that has a comment? Sure, please. Just name and address, please. Sure. 
Joe Halligan, One Newell Drive. First, I'd like to thank you for the appointment tonight. It's great to be back in action. A little hiatus there for a while, but it's great to be back. Uh, I'd like to just address a couple of comments first, and then I'll go back a little bit in history. Uh, I'm familiar with the property. At the ABC meeting, I had mentioned uh, Andrew Basanti at the time, God bless his soul, that came to me to purchase this property. And the purchase price was still a lot of money, but about $2 million for 30-something acres of land. And I says, that's just too good to be true. I says, you can't buy industrial land like that for that kind of money. Upon doing my research on the property, because I'm a, more of a commercial developer, I looked at it, and he's like, oh, we'll put a big marijuana facility in there. We can put like an Amazon in there. I looked at the property. It's not feasible for any of that. You might be able to squeeze in a small mom and pop dirt road, paved road, little you know, mechanic shops, industrial, but that you're never gonna put a big box store in there. It's just, the wetlands cut it up. Where these people came into play is they found that they can weave around that stuff and make it work in smaller buildings to make it a residential. It will never be developed as industrial. Uh, you're all Franklinites, you can go back 15, 20 years. This exact project was brought in front of the ZBA for a 40B came that close to be approved, there was a discrepancy between the owner and the, and the buyer, and it fell apart with lawyers and everything. It almost was, it was right there, it was in front of the ZBA, two meetings, ready to go, and it, it fell apart. So this idea has been lingering a long time for that possible problem. Nothing new. Uh, so I just want to give a little history on the land. Uh, traffic, absolutely a great concern. But where in Franklin is it not a concern? Where is it no traffic anywhere to put something like this? So, so I just, more. I just, so add more. No, no. So I, I'm just touching on that. There is, there is no traffic. But if you can remember, uh, and I'm, about two years ago, before the election, Jamie and I had conversation. We had conversation with others. There was the Massachusetts Affordability Act coming to Franklin, where you needed a full vote of the planning board and a full vote of the council to join together to go to the state so that we could become now eligible for funds and grants to the state, similar to what got paid on grocery. I can tell you for a fact that that night on the planning board, it was dead on arrival. Not one planning board member wanted to talk about affordable housing. I, Joe Halligan, within an hour, had great conversation with my members, and we got, I got them to vote unanimous to move this forward. So then, it was moved forward to Jamie, you people voted, I stuck my neck out with my members real strong that night to get an affordable setup going in Franklin because I really believe I'm an advocate of affordable housing. I, I did that before the election, prior to Fairfield even be interested in this property. So what, what I'm finding though is, and I, I watched all the meetings. I've been to EDCs, I've watched conservation. Everybody, everywhere, even the ZBA, there's one going up on Pleasant Street, neighbors are coming out, we need affordable housing, we need affordable, but not my backyard. That seems to be the thing going around town. Nobody wants to talk about it at the end when the shovel's ready to go into the ground. However, we broadcast that we are open to affordable housing, we need affordable housing, but when it comes to putting that shovel on the ground, we're close, everybody it seems to be finding an excuse how, why not to build it? Not, wow, we're gonna add 60, 70 affordable homes to the town of Franklin? Well, I watched the planning board the other night with the inclusionary zone. You need one unit for every ten is affordable. You would need 80 projects around the center of town 
to, to almost get about 80 affordable units. The project across the street is 104. At the time, the town wasn't asking for a, affordable. You would need eight of those sprinkled around town to get 78 units. Do you really want that? This is an area, yes, it's out of town. I live out of town. I don't want to live downtown. I don't want to get a train. I don't want to get a horn going off. I enjoy living out of the nature. This is an option for other residents that want to live in Franklin. Some people don't want to live downtown. Some like that state foresty, earthy, crunchy, walk the dogs, do the... That's a different lifestyle. It's not to be compared to the downtown inclusionary zone. It's a totally different lifestyle. Again, dog, uh, walking paths, dogs, stuff like that. Uh, again, tra addressing the traffic, we have traffic everywhere. So I think what I ran my campaign on, which wasn't successful, was affordable housing. I, I said, I want to see the affordable housing. You can read it right, it's still in the observer in the newspapers. I would like to get it elected again to see this affordable housing follow through. I'm glad now I'm on a master plan, maybe that'll touch a little bit on it. But uh, we really need affordable housing. We don't want to say we do, but we do. We don't want development, but we need it. And the dirty secret is, we're losing over 100 kids a year in the school system. No one wants to talk about it, but they're all talking about, you know, this is going to bring 45 kids into the school system. Who's to say some of those 45 are people living in Franklin who can't afford a home anymore and want to live in a, a lifestyle like that? Maybe half of those 45 are already in the school system that are absorbing that 20,000 students. That doesn't mean 45 people are moving in from out of town immediately with 45 more kids. Another dirty secret no one talks about is Franklin lost population last year. Hard to believe we're down in bodies. These are the things no one talks about, but it's the truth. I like the project sitting out there because of where it is. Not downtown, not clogging up the main streets, the main arteries, and again, not, I, I respect Kobe 100%, I love what the direction he's going, but not everybody, we have 36,000 residents in town, not all of those people live within walking distance of town. So I have to drive, so do the other people. We can't have a, a callous society because of the size of the town. We're always gonna have automobiles involved. I'm sure these individuals here will do their best on traffic studies and a positive vote tonight would allow them to go that next step to the ZBA where some of you members could go to a ZBA meeting and throw those ideas in and have the ZBA make that part of the condition. Tonight you really can't make it a condition. This is all sounds good, let it go, like the conversation was, they have the right to just go right to ZBA. They want to work with you. So maybe if there was some kind of little committee that wanted to go to ZBA and incorporate the ideas you people have, those people can put that in the decision. I don't believe that can be made into a decision tonight. But again, I afford affordability, I, I, I appreciate affordability, I support it, and a few people on the board uh, ran their campaign on affordability. A vote tonight is gonna show the town of Franklin. Do, does Franklin support affordable housing? If not, where is it? I've heard the meetings, oh, we don't want triple-deckers on 140. Well, that throws that out the door. We don't want this, we don't want that. What, what do we want if we want affordable housing? It's got to go somewhere. Start there and move your way in. At the last EDC meeting, it was talked about that by 2030, we're gonna be below 10%. 
like Robert just spoke, it's going to take 12 to 14 months just to get to the state, three to four year development. We're touching 2030. You have control of what you can see now, you might not have control. At 2030, we'll see you tomorrow. So, as, as Tom uh, had mentioned, this puts us a little above that 10% for the next 10, 15 years. But on my closing statement, if they were to bring 70 to 80 affordable houses in Franklin, I don't think any of us in this room will live long enough to ever see 80 units built in Franklin, no matter where it's built, that would allow housing in Franklin uh, for the affordables. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Jamie. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, through you to the council. Um, incredible questions, great dialogue. I appreciate everybody. I just want to offer um, just a couple of clarifying points real quick. Um, just so the folks watching at home, um, it's not about misinformation or miscalculation. A lot of what's described here tonight is a lot of feelings and I think a lot of emotions from a lot of people we all hear of uh, and talk to in town. Uh, phone the water issue, Council Flood, we mentioned it. The water ban and the water issues in your lawn, if you're listening at home, has nothing to do with this. Like, it's just like one of these things that I have to say, it's not just the state water ban on Fridays, it's our water management permit. And I understand, I don't wanna go into any details on it, I just want people to understand, no, there's not water everywhere, uh, you know, but we have water, and we have enough water for the quality of life in the town, and I understand Facebook tells us otherwise, but Facebook is wrong. And we have plenty of water in our water permit. Sorry, Facebook, you're wrong. Uh, the issue about flipping projects. There are a lot of local developers who grew up and were raised in Franklin who flip projects. Flipping projects is a market-based decision. It's part of a free market if we want liberties. We have to recognize that maybe certain people are not what we want, but beggars can't be choosers. And that when local developers flip projects, we oftentimes go, oh, I wish, I wish they hadn't. But ultimately, in the kind of society we have, that's what business does, whether you're local, from in town, in state, or out of town. Flipping projects is a part of it, no matter who you are and where you grow up, it's part of the economy. Regarding the location, I think Joe and many other peoples have dealt with that. It is a very struggling site to make better on an industrial property. Um, and so, uh, you know, this may be one of the best uses, and it may not be the scale of the project that's there, but at least from an industrial standpoint, looking at the map, you're right around the corner from Chilson Beach. There is some, there is some many, I think somebody mentioned the playground a little while ago, you know, I think we are looking at growth, as everyone knows, from Washington to Kenwood. We're building the bike lane. We have the parking lot at the corner of Beaver Street and Grove Street. I just encourage people uh, after this meeting, when you're driving around, just think about it as you drive up and down Grove and, and try to picture what uh, potentially it could be. Um, 200 acres of open space, affordability. Uh, I'm going to cite the guy in uh, the, may the mayoral candidate in New York City. The rent is too damn bleeping hot. Yeah. Okay, I mean, 1800 to 2300 really stinks. I hate to break the news to you. The state is setting these rates because this is actually what's affordable relative to the affluence of Massachusetts. True. Very hard truth. I'll throw it into what Joe just said. Things people don't want to talk about. The reality of the situation is most people in affordability is in the eye of the beholder. You may have the ability to pay, 
You may have the money to pay, but you don't like it. I never liked rent sending in a rent check. <laughs> it was awful. You know, and if I told Kobe today probably what I had for rent in Cambridge back when I lived there, he'd probably faint. Right? Every single one of us has gone through a point in our career where the rent was always too darn high. You want to know why the rent's high? Because there's nothing affordable. It's supply and demand. How many houses, Mr. Chairman, are available for purchase in the town of Franklin? Single family houses? Four. Four. That's why the rent is too damn high. And the reality is, there is no affordable housing because we don't allow it. And we're a purely supply and demand community like the rest of Massachusetts. I read an uh, interview yesterday with the governor and lieutenant governor. There's no money coming from the state, in my view, anytime soon to subsidize housing construction. So there are a lot of concerns about traffic. There are a lot of concerns I share about mitigation, uh, about uh, the proximity, the location. I wish I could have 10 acres somewhere else. <laughs> But look at Franklin Ridge, 60 units of permitted senior housing that the town sponsored. We've donated money to it. We've gotten $3.5 million MassWorks grants. I'm still thinking that project, if we got that done by 2030, would be a miracle. Um, at the end of the day, Brian's presentation last week gave me a statistic that I did not understand and I did not know and I was shocked at. That if the status quo when we build nothing, whether it's single family homes, apartments, condos, affordable, it doesn't matter. Whatever you know, tiny homes, accessory dwelling units, whatever way we want to look at it. If we don't increase anything, you're going to be under 10% in 2030. You're going to be under at nine and a half. And I think this is a case of a difficult, very challenging situation for myself, all of you and everybody in town um, to try to figure out, do we want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good? And I respect all of the opinions and, and comments that people make, I share those same difficult, the height of the building I share concerns over, I share concerns over the traffic. Um, but what I hear is the number one concern in Massachusetts is housing. Luxury housing, high rent housing, single family housing, affordable housing, low income housing, housing across the board. Um, and so when we talk about rents and mortgages and interest rates being high, one of the reasons why is because there just simply is not anywhere near as much housing stock that there is for the demand. And so the prices have gone through the roof, um, and that's one of the challenges. So I just wanted to point out a few of those other things. And, and through you, Mr. Chairman, one last comment, uh, a couple of minor things. We just purchased 200 acres of open space in Franklin over the last year and a half. We're very proud of that. Uh, I'm proud of it. You're proud of it historic community achievement that could have been 120 single-family homes. And we made the decision the inverse, which was the right decision, to say we're not going to have those there. And finally, Mr. Chairman, I just bring up the friendly 40B process. Uh, as Brian and others eloquently stated, we didn't need to do this. Um, and um, But in the best interest of the community, uh, it was our feeling uh, with the staff, particularly my own, I'll take responsibility for this, um, that to just randomly have projects pop up, I really believe bothers people more <laughs> than projects they're peripherally aware of, they might know, and through the planning board, conservation, the council, and I think a lot of citizens as well, and a lot of developers, um, we've been able to have a lot of lively conversations around how can 
we make a project better. Um, I'm not sure where housing will be built. I don't know. Um, applications are down at the uh, planning board. Um, I don't see a lot more housing coming. This is a very challenging decision for the community. It's a very challenging decision for the council. And a very challenging decision for the ZBA as well as DHCD. It's not easy. Um, but I encourage everybody who's watching tonight to just think about some of these dynamics. And if not this, why? Where? I don't know. I'm not thrilled with every element of this. The staff struggle with many aspects of this project too. I think they're all out on the table. I just don't know where we go as a town and a region with where we're going to build anything anywhere. I really don't. I, I just don't. I'm being honest. I don't see rumors. I don't hear rumors of new developments. Uh, the 117 station was one of the last larger tracts of land anywhere in downtown. Um, I think the community at some point through the master planning process is going to have to engage in this issue pretty heavily. Um, I don't know where else to build. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. <clears throat> yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Attorney Cyril. Uh, through you, Mr. Chairman, I just want to clarify on the projections on going under 10%, what that means. If it happens, it's not that you're exposed for the delta to get back over 10%. You are totally exposed. So a developer would come in with hundreds of units, even if you're one unit short, or as long as you're below 10%, multiple developers could come in with projects, and they're all it all depends on whether or not you're over 10% at the point where they file. Thank you. Councilor Jones. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, in lieu of our discussion and respecting the process, the friendly process, and I totally agree with the town administrator that this didn't have to happen, but it, it is great that you've taken the steps that you've taken. Uh, in lieu of that, and in lieu of respect to that process, I think there's a lot of questions that have come out of tonight. Would you be willing to come back to the council with another presentation with some of the, some of the questions, some of the answers to the questions that were posed tonight. Uh, are you specifically referring to like traffic counts and things like that? Yeah, just some of the specific questions that come up. I don't want to speak for, for Rob, but I, I'll, I'll speak up and say that like, part of the problem with the chicken or the egg is that there's a significant financial contribution to get to the point where we're providing all of this detail information, which we know we're going to have to do with the Zoning Board of Appeals. Um, so I might suggest to the councilor that um, uh, to echo the, the, the citizen's comment, uh, Joe's comment, that allow us to go through the process, allow us to invest the money and do the studies and work with the ZBA where we invite you to participate in the process as well. Um, and let's make this a good project rather than us try to permit the project at this level when we haven't even gone to the permit granting authority to begin with. So let, let us go forward with it and we invite you to participate and through that process I think that's already in place we can, we can try to get the project that everyone can live with and, and, and be proud of. I completely understand. There's a lot of time and a lot of money thought after that went into all of this, and I think I think one of my issues is that based on some of the major concerns, at least the feeling I get from my council, is that this, as it stands now, based on tonight's discussion, may not 
be in an affirmative. That's my only problem with some of the questions that have come up. So, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to make a motion to table resolution 2326 to our next meeting to try to afford some answers. You can wait for legislation to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the next thing. Yeah, it's the next thing. So, is there anything that anybody else wanted to add? No, thank you for your time. Okay, thank, thank you very much. Uh, I know uh, the time and effort that's gone into this, and uh, I believe you folks have done everything you asked to do to date as far as uh, working the process. So, uh, I very much appreciate that. Um, so with that, I will move on. That was uh, discussion. We'll move on to legislation for action. Resolution 23-26, Franklin Town Council support for proposed general law chapter 40B affordable housing project at 121 Grove Street pursuant to do it deep. DHCD's Local Initiative Program, LIP, Friendly 40B. Clerk will read the resolution. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is Resolution 23-26. Franklin Town Council supports for proposed general law chapter 40B, affordable housing project at 121 Grove Street, pursuant to DHCD's Local Initiative Program, LIP, Friendly 40B, whereas general law chapter 40B section 20-23 provides a legal framework for the creation of local, local affordable housing Motion to waive the reading. Second. second. Motion is second to waive the reading. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Move resolution 23-26. Second. Motion and the second. Any further discussion? Jamie, okay. Councilor Frangelo? I would just add, for the record, I don't know where we're going. I think where I currently stand is leaning in favor of um, allowing them to move forward. They seem like very willing uh, participants. They've made um, some uh, uh, commitments to working through some contributions uh, to the town and making sure that this project works. This is in no way uh, an endorsement of the project as it stands but rather that uh, we accept the baseline understanding that this could be a residential unit that adds affordable housing uh, to um, our uh, inventory, that adds a whole bunch of revenue to our inventory. The actual details still need to be uh, worked out, and I would certainly not feel comfortable endorsing the project and putting a final stamp on it today, but I, I do feel comfortable that, uh, you know, that, that they're strong partners and continue to move forward. That's where I'm feeling. Uh, in the thank, thank you, Councilor Frangelo. Councilor Plagery. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We don't have another vote coming after tonight on this project. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, so correct. for you to say that, um, Okay. Direct your question. Okay. That's correct, but they don't they don't have to be here tonight to get our endorsement. Right. And, but by the same token, uh, 
I think two counselors from Frangelo's, and I'm not going to, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I think we as a council need to have confidence in our zoning board of appeals as well as our planning board uh, to continue to work and deal with the issues that uh, they brought forward. I mean, uh, I, I think we have to have that confidence in, in the process. Uh, there's a process in place uh, to make sure these kinds of things get done right. And uh, I think we have to have confidence in our local boards to deal with them. And certainly not to say that we can't be there and issuing uh, and stating our opinions and what we like, what we don't like, uh, whether we don't like the project at all, or whether there's parts of it we'd like to see them do. Uh, we have other opportunities to do that, not as a council, but as citizens, as well as councilors. <coughs> where was I? I'm sorry. <laughs> Council of <Clark>. yeah, <laughs> But our resolution tonight says that we are in support of paperwork, of paperwork being filed. A proposed chapter. Of the paperwork to be filed to let them continue to work with the authorities. Am I mistaken by that comment? No. I mean, it, it's, it's, I think it's a difficult thread, but the ultimate action from this you are not permitting any project. You have no jurisdiction over wetlands. There are obviously waivers that are not under the purview of the town council. Every other board's gonna have the crack at this from a permitting perspective with the exception of the planning board. There is no role in a 40B for the planning board. Those go through the zoning board of appeals. That's the state law. The support for the project is essentially to move the, the paperwork to the Department of Community Housing Development. Um, I will say because this is unique, and we've, as a community, not really gone through this before, um, the ability for the council or others to get their mitigation in, I think is, to some degree, premature. Everybody said it, we know it. There's no traffic studies done. We don't know exactly where the buildings are gonna be um, in the wetlands. The delineations are gonna continue on. Um, and I don't have a timeline. I, I honestly don't have a timeline for that stuff. Um, and so it is an awkward position where you're supporting me going to the state to move the process along, but obviously the council of Allegri's uh, comments, and I can understand them, a lot of people may just say, oh wow, they all support the project, right? And I think that that's, you know, that's something that's hard to communicate, kind of like water bands. Could we change the word support? I think, yeah. Attorney uh, Sarah. So technically, under the state regulations, a, le a letter of support, which is what's in the DHE regulations, comes from the chief executive officer of the municipality. Given our particular form of government here, the chief executive officer, although he could just do it on his own unilaterally, wants to be given the instruction as to how to proceed by the council. So you're basically filling in to 
in the background kind of shadowing to tell the TA how you want to proceed. I still would feel much more comfortable through the institution um, without that word support. Because it is showing that we support this. And a lot of us don't support it, but we're willing to listen to the next stages that have to be done. It's the support is for whatever influence it has on the Zoning Board of Appeals, understanding that it's their decision, they're not bound by the fact that the town legislature or executive body supports, quote unquote, the project. There's going to have to be the give and take, there's going to have to be the pinning down of whatever concessions, or mitigation, or whatever is worked out. Uh, perhaps another uh, building re reconfiguration, what have you, because ultimately the only ones that really matter in the long run are the three members of the Zoning Board of Appeals, right. two of whom have to vote in the firm. Well, but the reason of having that word in there, I'm going to have to vote. Thank you, Councilor Pledgery, Councilor Chen. Through you, Mr. Chairman. I think the bottom line is it doesn't matter what we say because they're going to go to the Board of Appeals no matter what. And then we need to be there because there is a list of waivers sure. as long as my arm. And they're going to need to, I don't know if they put in writing why they support things, but they're going to need to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's where I'm at. No matter what I say tonight, they are going to the Board yeah. of Appeals. Mm -hmm. right? So why am I doing it? Just support yeah. You all set, John? Thank you, sir. Uh, Councilor Thank Thank you, too, Mr. Chair. Listen, it was funny. When, when we went over the 10%, the big idea was when we were all in the council, yeah. oh, now everything comes in front of us. And that's not true. Obviously, we were lied to. It's not true. Yeah. Because now they can just go to the Zoning Board, the Zoning Board of Appeals, and, and get a friendly party. Right? So why don't we just don't care about 2030? They'll just go to the the zoning board of appeals to get a friendly 40 feet. And what's going to be left in 2030 to build anything? There's nothing left in front. Right. There's nothing left in front. So what are we worried about? I don't know. Any other comments? Okay. The vote will come on the motion to approve resolution 23-26. A majority votes required. Sure. Uh, let's make this a roll call vote. All right. Call me a ledger. No. Charity? Yes. Chandler? No. Angelo? Yes. Flagry? No. Hamlet? Yes. Jones? No. Delarca? No. Mercer? Okay. Yes. And yes. So that's four to five. Sir? So motion fails. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Resolution 23-27, acceptance of an additional 2% COLA for retirees as authorized by Chapter 269 of the Legislative Acts of 2022. Clerk will read the resolution. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Second. This is Resolution 23-27. 
acceptance of an additional 2% COLA for retirees as authorized by Chapter 269 of the Legislative Acts 2022. Whereas Chapter 269 of the Legislative Acts of 2022 provides an additional 2%, total 5% cost of living increase for eligible Norfolk County Retirement System retirees for fiscal year 23 retroactive to July 1st, 2022. Upon acceptance by vote in Norfolk County Retirement System and local municipal acceptance, and whereas the Norfolk County Retirement Board voted favorably to approve the measures of November 30th, 2022, and whereas local municipal acceptance occurs when the Franklin Town Council votes favorably on the measure, which vote must be taken on or before June 30th, 2023. Now therefore being voted by the Franklin Town Council elected on behalf of the Town of Franklin, that the Town of Franklin hereby accepts Chapter 269 of the Legislative Acts of 2022, and as provided in the Norfolk County Retirement Board's vote on November 30th, 2022, agrees that eligible Norfolk County Retirement System retirees shall receive an additional 2% total 5% cost of living increase of fiscal year 23 retroactive to July 1st, 2022. This resolution become effective according to the provisions of the Town of Franklin Home Charter. Move resolution 23-27. Second. Motion is second. Discussion, Jamie. Through you, Mr. Chairman, this is a request by the county. Uh, my knowledge is that the overwhelming majority, if not every other community in Norfolk has voted to increase the COLA for retirees this year by an additional 2%. It was three, uh, and uh, to my knowledge, again, almost every community has voted in favor, so I'm requesting that uh, the council votes in favor to give the retirees an additional 2%. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Councilor Cormier-Ledger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. To the town administrator, how much is currently in our budget to support? Is this request gonna be in, addi in addition to what we currently budget for this? Going to say something inaccurate, but accurate it doesn't. It's not a correlation. It's not a budgetary item for the town. It comes off the county assessment, so there is no real actual budget impact. So this, we're allowed to approve something that doesn't actually have a financial impact to Franklin. Right. It will, but it doesn't right now. It doesn't have. This is not a two percent cost driver in the budget today. This is comes from county money. Does that make sense? This is from the contributions from the employees through the pension system. But you said it, it's not going to impact us now, but it will impact us later. So I guess that the second part of my question is when do when does this, in fact, hit us as a as a body? Pro I'm guessing FY25, possibly FY26. Um, ultimately, the pension system is the pension system, and it's run by the state and we basically just do what they ask us to do. If we don't fund this obligation, you're gonna have way more angry people at you than any housing development in Franklin. <laughs> I can assure you that, and I'm just I'm pointing it out because it's very, I don't, I, Mr. Chairman, just to be clear, I, I'm, I, I'm just struggling, and I, with all due respect, Councilor Cormier-Ledger, I just, we can do a pension 102, 101, 202. It just, it doesn't act like a 2% cost driver on the tax bill. It, it, it's hard to explain, but I can't explain it without going into a 40 minute, five minute pension. Okay, I, I, I don't want you to do a 45 minute presentation. <laughs> even, even 15 minutes? Not even. No, no. And I, and I, 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 I refuse to apologize for asking a question. No, it's, no, a, no, no. it's a phenomenal question. I just, it's a question that is extremely complicated and we need to, 
It'd be we an need, offline we need to teach about the retirement yeah. system. Right. Yeah. And I certainly don't want any retiree, including those on this panel, to be angry at me for not giving them 2% as they're enjoying their time in Florida. I don't want that. I was just asking who bears this new burden, because I know we have some tough budget discussions okay. going on right now. So yeah, I will uh, give, up the, give up my time. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor Comey Ledger. Uh, Councilor Frangillo? I'll take that exact time to ask very similar questions. I, I do want that 15-minute presentation. It doesn't have to be now. I, I don't have a great understanding of how this affects um, our uh, liabilities, but it seems like it has to. So here's what happened. Through you, Mr. Chairman. So here's the essential basic number. So the pension liability, what you aim for is 100% fundability of your pension system. The pension system in Norfolk County and statewide is probably somewhere in their 70 or 80% fully funded right now. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's very, very high. So instead of, say, 85% of the pension obligation being funded right now, this additional cost increase then drives down the percentage of the liability that is funded. It actually doesn't really have a budget impact other than we get pension assessments from Norfolk County every year. This year it's like 350,000. Last year it was a half a million. The year before that it was another half a million. And I'm just trying to like cut to the chase in the sense they send you the bill and you either pay it or you don't. And I can assure every single one of you, every town manager, and board of selectmen, elected official in Norfolk County and every other county struggles to deal with the accountability of the pension systems in general. As Norfolk managers, we ask for presentations out of the county lot. They don't do them. They kind of do, but they don't. It's just a very, very challenging issue to get our arms around. Uh, but in essence, it's not like a 2% like a COLA. It's the liability percentage that is fully funded now will drop a couple percent. But eventually, that number will go back up because over the, over the course of time, the valuation grows. That's the best I can do in three minutes. <laughs> Yeah, but a further explanation another time would be helpful. I would be more than happy to. Thank you. I would love to. Yeah, and this is just to say that, you know, at the end of the day, it is still, um, you know, money that will need to be paid. Um, it may be, a, it spreads it out over a longer period of time. Um, it allows for the pension system to, at some point we're saying we're guaranteeing money to retire. So one of your things is fiscal this year. This is why it requires every community in Norfolk County to vote yes. Oh well. Oh well. And we're the last one. And we're the last one. Yeah. That's all. It, it, it just seems like, like, you know, I just wanted to defend the notion of scoffing at, I think, a well-intended, a, a, a very well-meaning, you know, our Everyone, if given the opportunity to get an extra three, you know, uh, whatever, three hundred dollars a year, uh, they would want that, and they would be mad if they if they had an opportunity to get it. And we took that from them. It doesn't mean that it's money that we have. And so I think it's a very reasonable thing to make sure that any time we're committing to money, that we that we figure that. That that was my point. I would love an explanation of pensions at all. Okay, and, and we got. We will do that so that everybody understands. Okay. Councilor Delano. You'll get there someday. To <laughs> <laughs> you'll get there someday. We're going to want a little bit of a recession. <laughs>
<laughs> what? I'll max that. <laughs> but I'll be honest with you. Um, my buddy that I work with is the Peabody City Councilor, and they're only like six percent uh, close. We're, we're lucky because Norfolk County has good people that invest the right way. That's why we're so high up right. in our seventies. That just I know that's kind of weird, but like fifty-six percent. He told me today fifty-six percent. And I thought, I, I think my wife told me we were close to like 76%, yeah. which is like, I think my, like two, 2031, we might be fully vested, right? Which is incredible for 28 towns, to be honest with you. And, and, sure. and you need a better intake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. You need a better explanation. Any further, <laughs> any further discussion? Seeing none, the vote will come on the motion to approve resolution 23 27. A majority votes required. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Bylaw amendment 23 893, amendment to sewer system map. Second reading. Clerk will read the bylaw amendment. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is bylaw amendment 23893, amendment to sewer system map. Bylaw to amend the Code of Town of Franklin, Chapter 139, entitled Sewers, as follows. Be enacted by the Franklin Town Council that Chapter 139-14 of the Code of Town of Franklin, entitled Sewer System Map, Exhibit A Map, amended by adding the following extension as an eligible location. 139-14, <coughs> Exhibit A, extending sewer system for Cannabis Grove facilities on 160 Grove Street. The proposed sewer extension will involve connecting to the existing gravity sewer, which terminates in front of number 168 Grove Street, Franklin Tile, and installing new gravity sewer approximately 600 feet northerly and upstream to the area in front of one, number 160 Grove Street. The bylaw should not, be, uh, should not become effective until all conditions agreed to between the property owner and DPW are satisfied. This bylaw shall become effective according to the provisions of the Town of Franklin Home Charter. Move bylaw amendment 23-893. Second. Motion to second. Discussion, Jamie? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is the second and final reading of the sewer map amendment uh, to 160 Grove. Uh, just for reference, the last roll call vote a month ago was 8 to 1. This is the second reading. Thank you. Thank you. Any further discussion? Council Plate? Remove the chair. This, this doesn't have anything to do with the um, 161 that we just talked about. Oh, that's 121. We just talked about 121. For when they yeah. came yeah. oh, okay. right. so it's not. No, it has nothing to do. Just wanted to make sure. Okay. Thank you. Is there any other discussion? Seeing none, the vote will come on the motion to approve bylaw amendment 23-893, a majority roll call votes required. Clerk will call the roll. Sherry? Yes. Ledger? Yes. Perdillo? Yes. Chairman? Uh, that's another no. Allegri? Yes. Evelyn? Yes. Jones, yes. Vice Chair? Yes. Chair? Yes. That is eight and one no, sir. Motion carries. Town Administrator's Report. Here, Mr. Chairman, I just want to um, give a huge shout out and a thank you um, to uh, the Franklin Fire Department and Senior Center staff um, for a packed house today. Um, for the annual corned beef dinner. Close call, almost didn't have it. I gotta give a shout out to Mike and Rescue24 and the teams that have been down there. Those of you that will be down there hopefully tomorrow, 
the Senior Center office hours, 8.30 tomorrow morning, it's on, it's going to be in the cafe. People have a chance to look at, um, at, the, uh, at the facility and, um, and the fixes that have been made. Um, but I can't thank enough for the Senior Center staff uh, who did a great job, the firefighters. Um, it just looked like a very, very festive and jovial uh, spot. Um, and then I just want to offer a, a, a rare deep condolences to uh, Sergeant Palmieri, uh, the police department, and the entire Franklin Police Department community, and the Oak Street, uh, the Oak School uh, community, uh, and Franklin Public Schools, after the loss of uh, Bianca Palmieri, passed away this week at the age of 45, very sadly, from uh, a long bout with breast cancer. Um, if many of you may have noticed tonight, all the police officers in town are wearing the breast cancer awareness patch. Um, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. It's been something we've all worked with uh, PD on for years, and our deep condolences to, uh, to Nick and uh, the whole police department. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, subcommittee reports. Capital hasn't met EDC. Can I just yes, you mention can. Next, our next Yes, meeting? you can. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. We haven't met uh, since our last meeting, but since our last full-time council meeting, but we have a meeting next Wednesday at six o'clock here in Chambers. Um, we have the whole night to discuss <laughs> accessory dwelling units, <laughs> and um, it's the it's the um, the Franklin Frost Steering Committee. So it's going to be a, another lively discussion. Um, and I hope everybody tunes in and. and uh, and joins the conversation. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Councilor Hamlin. Uh, budget subcommittee, uh, we did meet, and uh, uh, we had some very lively discussions uh, with um, most of it uh, centered on a lot of the school uh, side of the budget. So um, I think uh, the plan, the, as the budget process continues, we will probably not have another joint budget subcommittee meeting prior to our uh, scheduled budget hearings, which are May 24th and 5th. So that Wednesday and Thursday night will be a full, uh, and the schools will be having their uh, budget hearing March 28th March 28th so uh, those that can I say please tune in uh, pay attention ask some questions uh, it's going to be uh, a difficult budget uh, season and uh, I think going forward the next year or two are going to be very similar so it's important that we all pay very close attention to the municipal part of the budget as well as the school part of the budget. So, Gatra? Just real quick, uh, we did not meet, uh, we're not meeting this month, um, but we are preparing the budget and they're hoping to um, have that uh, by May. They're moving some things, it's going to look like a different uh, budget hopefully a little easier to read uh, for all of us, but that'll be done in May. Great. Thank you, Councilor Frangelo. Uh, future agenda items. Uh, Councilor Cormier-Ledger. Nothing at this time, Mr. Chairman. Councilor Chandler. Uh, nothing at this time. Councilor Plater. Nothing at this time. 
Councillor Sharon? Yeah, maybe a uh, discussion about having a place to put up different types of flags that Blue's brought up earlier. Uh, yeah, I think Jamie, uh, you had a conversation. Uh, oh, we are just going to talk about permitting and yeah, with Amber. Exactly. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll be with her at some point. So, <coughs> and maybe not just you. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. Uh, looking for a place in town yeah. other than uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was going to say something similar. If you feel like you need a policy, uh, then then I would right. like to then I would like to provide you with that policy in order to make what I think is a is a no brain decision to uh, yeah. raise the pride flag for sure. Sure. Anything else? That's it. Councillor Hamlin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I agree to have that. Um, what Councillor Sheridan and Councillor Frangelo talked about. Also. I think it would be really good to have a discussion about um, <laughs> the pensions Sorry, no. uh, that we talked about. We will. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right. we will. I just want to make sure oh, we we on that, was the the bed. that was put the bed. And, okay. I know, I know, but I just want to make sure I state it when it was supposed to be stated. Yeah. Very good. Right? Because this is when we state those things. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. You are correct, and thank you, Councilor Hamlin. No. <laughs> Nobody did that. I already did that. <laughs> Councilman Jones. No future agenda items, sir. Oh. Just had to write that down. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Councilman DeLoco. Uh, no, but Jamie, if you would like, I could probably pressure my wife to have Kathleen come and give it uh, to Kathleen would be. You have no idea how excited I just be. made his <laughs> You made my night. <laughs> Kathleen, we're sitting here talking about the pension. I, I can text her right Kathleen. She's right. exceptionally bright. She knows she's exactly what she's talking start. about. She uh -huh. just doesn't come out of the office much. Well, we can get her. I can get her. But I know you got a few. You know, I can get her. There is a connection. She she speaks for like all the other uh, pension people, like the city of Boston, Massport, uh, MBTA. They hire her to cram. Yeah, she's really good. But I will get her here. Great, Great. that's good. But awesome. so, thank you. Thank you. That's okay. Uh, Councillor comments. Councillor Sheridan. Uh, this happened St. Patrick's Day. Councillor Frangillo. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to rattle off a, a few. Arts and Culture Symposium, Metro West Arts and Culture Symposium, that's at Dean um, on the 30th. That should be a, a great uh, panel discussion. Some really good uh, participants there. Uh, open Space and Rec Survey is still open until April 16th, if you haven't participated in that yet. Arts and Culture Survey is open until June 1st. Um, we had a great first arts and culture discussion. Um, if you weren't able to take part, or even if you were, we'd love to see you at the library, 9 to 11 a.m. on April 28th. So you got some time uh, to put that on your schedule. Uh, senior office hours are tomorrow. Um, and then next week, uh, sorry, on the 29th, 4 to 6 p.m., the, uh, there's going to be a Converse and conserve workshops, what they're calling it. If you own um, uh, land and want to learn more about how to pass on an estate, um, how to potentially conserve it, uh, get some benefits from that, if you own a large piece of land, uh, that would be a great opportunity to bring a ton of people together in this Birchwood uh, refreshments. Uh, we got a nice grant to make that a real nice uh, event. So if you have a, a large parcel of land, uh, stop by. Uh, 29, 4 to 6 p.m. here at the Municipal Building. Thank you, Councilor Frangelo. Councilor Hamlin. He said that almost as fast as I did. Yeah, you were <laughs> <was> there. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I would, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I um, everything that um, Councilor Frangelo said. Plus, um, I would I would like to to give my personal condolences to the Palmieri family. Um, they've been very um, supportive of, of me in general, and um, I really um, just want them to know that I'm thinking about them. Thank you, Councilor Hamblin. Councilor Cormier-Ledger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I also want to offer my condolences to the Palmieri family. Um, congrats and welcome to all of our new uh, police officers. That was seems like that was five days ago. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, congratulations yeah. to all of them. Um, I want to thank everyone that did come out to our first Arts and Culture Subcommittee meeting last week at Dean. Uh, it was a really great discussion. It was a full room, uh, and we're looking forward to um, those additional conversations. Um, congratulations to the cast, staff, and volunteers of uh, Something Rotten at the Black Box. Uh, I was able to go uh, this past weekend, and what a fantastic uh, performance, and truly how lucky we are to have uh, that kind of high-quality performance going on in our town. Uh, and I guess lastly, I just want to throw out my public support, uh, not for what um, Ms. Wilson brought up earlier, uh, not just about the Pride flag and us showing our support as a council for Pride Month, but just in general, our efforts to really you know, figure this issue out. I think to continue to sort of say, you know, we don't want to deal with it, we don't want to deal with it is not the right approach. I think the time is now and we, um, I appreciate her bringing that up and uh, being brave enough to stand in front of all of us and say, please do something about this. I, she's certainly not alone, uh, and that will have my, my full support. So, thank you. Thank you, Councillor Cornelia-Ledger. Councillor Chandler. Um, I just want to bring something up that I've been a little confused about. I, I know you guys um, over there, they can't speak to it, but last week or so, the Mass Supreme Court came down with a ruling, like people are the chairman, what they can um, put people down for or tell them to sit down. I, I mean, I just um, I just wondered if they could put something out, because all of us could be a chairman, if we're vice chair, you're in the floor, you know. Sure. And, you know, just because some, um, this sounds kind of bad, but just because someone at the speaker hurts Tom's feelings does not give you the right to tell him to sit down. That's correct. And I think sometimes that happens in this town, and they get gaveled down. So I just didn't know, like, I mean, if we know all this, like, I mean, and you, and you um, get into someone's civil rights like that, I mean, you lose your qualified immunity to bring up that word because it's always on us. Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah. So <coughs> actually, I think Mark, 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 yes, I had this conversation. Oh, all right, already. Oh, no, I get into a big long. No, I don't want you to. I understand that, and you may know as well, MMA is putting out a detailed guidance, yeah. working on it now, uh, with input from all the lawyers that are available to them, so that you'll know how to proceed. And Thank you, Mr. Well, that's what I was looking for. Thank you. Excellent. Anybody can stand up and call me anything except the body. No, I wouldn't call them anything either. <laughs> 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 Council of Blade. We have in our rules and orders 
something to do with the chairman um, having somebody sit down. So I mean, maybe that's what has to be changed. First of all, the open meeting law uh, addresses it, and also the fact of you can still regulate disruptive conduct. Right. Mm -hmm. But you can't have what they said in a nutshell is you cannot have a code of civility. It, it impinges on not, not only the First Amendment, but more importantly, provisions in the state's own constitution that go way the heck back to colonial times. So. But disruption and things like that. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, I'd like I would like to bring up once again about the Rod and Gun Club's breakfast. It's going to be this Sunday. Starts at 7.30. And um, last time I brought it up at the meeting, they had a full house. Full house. It was just wonderful there. And they were so pleased. So once again, I'm bringing it up. And know that it's pancakes and sausage and bacon and hash browns and everything imagined. Everything that's $8. really good for really good part. $8 for adults and $4 for children. Um, and perhaps I should have mentioned this under um, agenda items, but an update on the brick school and the old museum, what's happening there, you know, how far along we are now. Uh, the Red Brick Schoolhouse, uh, very briefly, the windows, uh, this is just a matter of life these days. Um, people make mistakes. Um, the windows were, were that were sent were rejected because they were four inches too wide. And so it's a bummer, but you know, we'll move on. You know, we reordered them, they'll be here in four months, five months, and maybe six, like the traffic light on Grove. Uh, maybe it'll be away two years. Uh, no, and I, I'm, I know it sounds cranky and funny, but it's true. Things just take a long time to get here. So the windows were just completely screwed up. We didn't pay for them, we rejected them. Uh, the windows and the door are pretty much the parts remaining. The historical museum, museum cupola is probably still a year out. The backlog of projects on Mike's team is just so much, and that's a very complicated project. Uh, but the money stays there, and we'll get to it when we get to it. Has Habitat for Humanities been working at the museum? Uh, no. What? My question. Oh, oh, I thought you were talking about the historical museum. museum. No, no, no. That's yeah. the Oh yeah, they're they're drafting a present. They're evaluating a preservation restriction with the Commonwealth. So they're working on that on their end. We won't yeah. probably hear from them for a couple more months. When we see work, we can mention it. Right? Yeah, so I apologize. I thought you were yeah. talking about the museum cupola. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that, that too. too. <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 and lastly, um, Paul Mary family. Might be yeah. the sympathy to them. Thank you, Councilor Pellegrini. Oh, Councilor Jones. Yes, sympathies to the Palmieri family. That's really sad. Um, and congratulations to our Franklin, our new Franklin Police Department officers. That was awesome. I love having these ceremonies and family. Chairman, it's great to see them sworn in tonight. Um, I want to give a big, huge thank you to uh, my fellow counselors and my new teammates as part of the master plan. I, Show you, uh, I promise to do my best and work with you to make our next master plan the best master plan for the town of Franklin moving forward, including and encompassing many different things. Hopefully, having um, all the citizens who have an interest in making the town of Franklin a better place to live and raise a family. And come on down, we're going to have some very hearty discussions in the next 12 to 18 months on the master plan. It's going to be very exciting. I'm very much looking forward to it. And I couldn't, of course, 
um, go the night without mentioning uh, how proud I am of my son, who actually just got um, pinned and officially promoted to the highest rank of chief in the U.S. Naval Sea Cadet Corps. It's the highest rank that the Sea Cadets afford our cadets. Um, there's no other rank after that other than aging out of the program at 19 in June. <laughs> um, I just want to say that I'm so proud of him. He's put in four and a half hard years uh, to get to that point, and um, it's it's so it's kind of like equal to the Eagle Scouts for mm -hmm. Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so, all right, that's it, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Thank you, Councillor Jones, and congratulations, you, sir. Son, uh, Councillor Delanco. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. To you, uh, of course. Uh, condolences to the Palmieri family. I mean, that's very, very sad. And actually, to uh, the ex-owner of the Union Cafe. Union Cafe, Willie Kalach passed away. He passed away the other day. Uh, always a funny guy. Always had something to always had something to say. Uh, but uh, I condolences to his family too. And Jamie. Um, I got a couple of complaints about the traffic and, and funny about the traffic in front of St. Mary's Church. Yep. People are there complaining about, they think it's the wrong way and I don't know how to tell them, I think it's a police issue. They think that the right lane should go straight and right and just the left lane turn left because they say it backs way up and it did. I went there at five o'clock and back up. But I have no answer for it. I, I don't, yeah, it makes sense to me, but it could be a, a police yeah. issue, you know? So it's in front of the church if they, because they can go right on red or if they went straight. straight. Going down south. south going down yeah. south. Though. Going down Beaver, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, they're saying the traffic is too busy because it's hard to take a left there. So it should be the it's, same. It's, it should be the other way. The left lane should just take lefts oh. instead of the right lane just taking rights. And the right lane should go right yeah. and straight. It's, so it makes sense. But maybe fixed. you can ask that you totally fixed. Uh, there you go. Done. No, I, I have no idea. I don't either. I think people are just probably going to be stuck in traffic. Uh, yeah. It's just, I, I don't I think she's aware. I don't. I'm all set. I just said, yeah. I handled yeah. that. No, 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 no. Uh, you handled it well. Okay. Uh, He's still here. Yeah, and I'd like to. And Amber ain't Griffin. Amber's the troubadour. Look, she's still in the back. My turn. Uh, my turn. I'd like to thank everybody that was here this evening. I'd like to thank the. Uh, it's great, as Councilor Jones said, to have swearing in of the new police officers and to have four of them at one time coming in uh, was uh, really good and I like the support uh, from the police community when, when they come before us to be sworn in and uh, our presenters this evening both the chief on the flock uh, uh, cameras as well as uh, Fairfield uh, um, on 121 Grove so I thank everybody for their participation this evening, and sorry for the lengthy night, but at this juncture, I would entertain a motion. So moved. Second. Not debatable. <laughs>
Thank you, All those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tin Type Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.